A 23-year-old man with a rifle shot and killed four bank employees in Louisville, Kentucky this morning. Police say the suspect was live streaming the attack at the time. Nine people were wounded. Three of them are in critical condition. Today is Monday, April 10th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon, I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, 10 years after the Boston Marathon bombings, the medical team that was working at the finish line speaks publicly for the first time about trying to care for all the injured. I could start to feel panic because they're coming to me. Where do we go? Where's safe? I had no idea. Also, Texas Governor Greg Abbott is pushing to pardon an Army sergeant convicted of killing a Black Lives Matter protester in 2020. It's 401 News Headlines and Wall Street Numbers are coming up next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh. Louisville, Kentucky police are releasing the names of the four people killed in a mass shooting this morning at Old National Bank downtown. Two victims were in their 40s, two others in their 60s. Governor Andy Bashir says one of the victims was a close friend. Tommy Elliott helped me build my law career, helped me become governor, gave me advice on being a good dad. It's one of the people I talk to most in the world and very rarely were we talking about my job. He was an incredible friend. Police say six people remain hospitalized. Three are in critical condition, including a 26-year-old police officer who graduated from the police academy only about two weeks ago. They're identifying the gunman as Connor Sturgeon, white male, 23 years of age, who worked at the bank. Police say his weapon of choice was a rifle. Police say two officers engaged with the gunman and killed him. The Gun Violence Archive reports this morning's mass shooting is the 146th in America since the start of the year. NPR's Frank Ordonez reports President Biden is again pressing Republicans in Congress to take up gun safety reform legislation. President Biden is asking how many more Americans need to die before Republicans take action to protect communities. At the White House, Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre said it's time for Republican lawmakers to work with Democrats to ban assault weapons, high-capacity magazines, and require background checks for all gun sales. Instead, we've watched Republican official after Republican official after Republican official double down on dangerous bills that make our schools, that makes our places, places of worship, that makes our communities less safe. The shooting comes just two weeks after three children and three adults were killed in a mass shooting at an elementary school in Nashville. Franco Ordonez, NPR News. The political fate of two freshmen state lawmakers in Tennessee who took part in recent gun reform protests on the state house floor could be decided this week. The Nashville Metro Council is expected to meet soon on filling one of the vacant house seats. Cynthia Abrams with member station WPLN has the latest. Tennessee law requires that the county council where a legislator is from vote in an interim replacement before a special election is held. Former state representative Justin Jones only needs a simple majority to reclaim his seat. Already, at least three-quarters of council members have declared their intent to reappoint him. Metro Council rules require a four-week waiting period before making the appointment. At the end of those four weeks, the state legislature may have already adjourned for the year. The council could vote to suspend those rules, but two dissenting members would be enough to force the wait. For NPR News, I'm Cynthia Abrams in Nashville. The Dow closes up more than 100 points. You're listening to NPR News. 
This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Today marks the beginning of a new chapter for the MBTA. General Manager Philip Eng started his job today. WBUR's Andrea Perdomo-Hernandez caught up with Eng after he commuted to his job for the first time. The new GM started his first day by riding the system. He says he took the blue line and transferred to the green line to meet reporters at Park and Tremont Streets. Eng says he spoke with commuters along the way. I had a nice mix of Folks have been riding regular visitors that are visiting Boston, as well as future employees. Ang says making the troubled system more reliable, safe, and efficient won't happen overnight. As we restore the service, I think things will start to turn. We're confident that we'll do that. It's just a matter of how fast we can do it, and obviously sooner rather than later is the preference. Ang says hiring staff and promoting transparency within the authority are among his top priorities. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Andrea Perdomo-Hernandez. Today, the city of Boston is honoring the late Mel King. A public viewing and visitation is getting underway this hour at the Union United Methodist Church in Boston. Earlier this afternoon at City Hall Plaza, Boston Mayor Michelle Wu presided over wreath-laying ceremonies for King. We hereby do proclaim April 11, 2023, to be a citywide day of remembrance and celebration for the life and legacy of the Honorable Melvin Mel H. King. Mayor Wu says the late civil rights activist, community leader, and politician broke down walls and barriers in the city. Mel taught us all how to serve, how to build, how to love, and how to envision a Boston that could truly be a home to everyone. Mel King died March 28th at the age of 94. His funeral is set for tomorrow at noontime. City officials say the steeple of the Faith Lutheran Church on Broadway near Inman Square in Cambridge will have to be removed. Fire ripped through the church yesterday shortly after Easter services were held there. Some roads near the church remain closed. The cause of the fire is under investigation. 63 degrees now, a beautiful day today. Should have a string of really nice days, really warm ones too this week. Right now, it looks like we should have clear skies tonight, falling to the mid-40s, then tomorrow breaking into the low 70s with sunshine in full force. This is WBUR. It's 4.07. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Celebrity Series, presenting Ishtak Perlman this Sunday, 3 p.m. at Symphony Hall. Learn more at CelebritySeries.org. And Capital One, offering their premium travel card, VentureX. Capital One, what's in your wallet? Details at CapitalOne.com. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. Two Tennessee lawmakers who were expelled by the state legislature last week may soon be headed back to the Capitol in Nashville. Democrats Justin Jones and Justin Pearson, both black, were expelled by the Republican supermajority in the Tennessee House. A third Democratic representative, Gloria Johnson, a white woman, was also up for expulsion, but she was able to keep her seat by a single vote. Now, all three of them had taken part in protests that disrupted proceedings at the state house, protests that were calling for stricter gun control measures in the state. The Nashville Metro Council is meeting today to decide how to fill one of the two vacant seats, the one that Representative Jones was ousted from. Zolfat Suara sits on the council and has already said that she will vote to have Jones reinstated. 
Suara is a Democrat and has been a Nashville Metro Council member at large since 2019. And she says Jones is a close friend. Yes, and actually he's uh, uh, like a son to me. Uh, he calls me his mama Z. So we, we've had a, a relationship for a long time. But my vote is not just about that. My vote is based on all the thousands of emails and calls that we've received from his constituents demanding that we send him back. And so it's about the voices of the voters and why we have to respect that. When I spoke to Councilwoman Suara earlier today, I asked her what went through her mind last week when Representatives Jones and Pearson were expelled. I was actually sitting in the gallery. I had been out of town. I came back that morning, went straight to the state capitol and listened to uh, the airing and and, and the back and forth. (laughs) And I was sitting there thinking, you know, at the end of the day, they would not expel them. Like... You know, we know what happened. We know why they protested. We know I see people on the streets. I see mothers crying, students begging for us to do something. And that's what they were trying to do. So I thought at the end of the day, you know, nothing would happen. And so when the vote actually happened, I was crying. I knew we had the opportunity to possibly put him back. But the fact that it did happen uh, was a fast on democracy. I have an 18-year-old that just voted for the first time, and I'm sitting there thinking, what would these kids be thinking about when, when a legislature can be voted out just like that, just because they wanted to stand with the people? And especially in a place where we've had other people committed worse things, done worse things, and were not expelled. So, so it, was, it was very disheartening. It was very emotional for, for a lot of us. It was very upsetting. And, and it was really bad. And at the end of the day, it was actually worse when there were three of them, but only the two black were were expelled. I wanted to Uh, ask you about that piece of all this. Do you think the decision to expel Jones and Pearson, but not Johnson, do you think that decision was related to race? I mean, the optics doesn't look good. And that's the only conclusion that can be drawn because all three of them had the hearing, all three of them had the resolution, all three of them were standing up there. Uh, And so... Whatever compels some people to vote against expelling Gloria Johnson, why did they not use the same to be able to to keep the other two? It just doesn't make sense. And so to me and to everybody looking at it, the optics doesn't look good. And I mean, they can say something else, uh, but the action shows that two black men were expelled and it, it, it has to be raised. If we can just step back, your city, Nashville, went through the trauma of a mass shooting at a school just two weeks ago. In fact, that was the reason for the protests, calling for stricter gun control measures. And now those protests have given way to this bigger debate about democracy in your state. I mean, you're thinking about your 18-year-old son who just voted. Do you think this whole situation has turned into a distraction from the original issue, guns? I think the hearing and the expulsion was a distraction. I think the people that are protesting have not lost sight of why they started the protest. At every protest that I've attended, at everything that I've seen, people still keep bringing back the issue of the guns. And so even with the hearing, I remember Jones saying that, look, even if you expel me, we will be back. We're going to still be talking about this. On Friday, there was another protest held in Nashville about guns. And so we have not forgotten. I think they're the one trying to distract, but we are less focused on the reason why we're here. Well, 
The Republican leadership in the state legislature has staunchly defended its decision to expel Representatives Jones and Pearson. Tell me, what would you like to say personally to those Republican lawmakers at the state capitol now? I would like to say a couple of things. Uh, The first thing is that if the council, uh, Nashville City Council and Memphis commissioners should vote to put these individuals back, I hope that the state would not object, and I hope that they will sit them as soon as possible. That would be the first thing. The second thing that I would like to say is that none of us should forget the reason why all this started. It's about the people that died. It's about the protest for good gun law. So personally, I hope that our state legislators will enact safe gun laws, common sense gun laws. And so I'm hoping that at the end of the day, one that these two black men get their seats back if their people choose to send them back. And then number two, that I hope after all of this, that our state legislators listen to the people, the outcries, the rally, and make sure that we do something about gun control in our state. That was Nashville Councilwoman at large, Zolfat Suara. Thank you very much for your time today. Thank you for having me. President Biden heads to Northern Ireland tomorrow to mark the 25th anniversary of the signing of the Good Friday Agreement. Then it is on to the Republic of Ireland, where he is expected to make official stops in Dublin and personal stops in two counties where his family has roots. President Biden is known to wear his Irish Catholic heritage on his sleeve. And as NPR's Tamara Keith reports, he has a penchant for quoting the great Irish poets. President Biden quotes Irish poets so often he has a joke about it, and he tells that joke a lot. They always used to kid me because I always quoting Irish poets on the floor of the Senate. They think I did it because I'm Irish. That's not the reason. I did it because they're the best poets in the world. Dan Clucci was a senior presidential speechwriter in the early part of the Biden administration. I wouldn't say that he exclusively quotes Irish poets, but I think you're probably looking at a a ratio of, you know, at least a 90-10 scenario. In particular, Biden is fond of William Butler Yeats. As the Irish poet said, all change changed utterly. A terrible beauty has been born. That is from the poem Easter 1916, about a failed uprising in Ireland's fight for independence from Great Britain. Biden has applied that stanza to an America divided, a changing world, the aftermath of wildfires in California, and to mark the Jewish High Holy Days. And yes, it appears in many a Senate floor speech. But that is far from the only Yates Biden has at the tip of his tongue. But we hear the words of Yates. He said, think where man's glory most begins and ends, and say, my glory was I had such friends. Words that echo from an island close to my heart as a descendant of County Mayo and County Louth. There he was praising the Irish rock band U2, Yates won the Nobel Prize for Literature in 1923 for giving expression to the spirit of a whole nation. For Biden, the compulsion to quote his words runs deep, as he described in a CNN town hall in 2020. As a child trying to overcome his stutter, Biden used his Uncle Ed Finnegan's book of Yates. And and I'd get up in the night, in the middle of the night, with a flashlight, and I'd look in the mirror, and I would try to memorize what I could, another small book on Emerson quotes. I remember the first one, looking in the mirror with a flashlight in my face because you get embarrassed because you can, you, you, you can torch your face. And it's embarrassing. In a way, Biden has found his own voice through Yates. 
But it was a different Nobel Prize winning poet and playwright who Biden quoted as he accepted the Democratic Party's nomination for president in August 2020. The Irish poet Seamus Heaney once wrote, history says, don't hope on this side of the grave. But then, once in a lifetime, the longed for tidal wave of justice can rise up and hope and history rhyme. This is our moment to make hope and history rhyme with passion and purpose. Biden isn't the first or the only politician to quote from Heaney's play, The Curate Troy, but he may well be the politician who quotes those lines the most. The former presidential speechwriter Dan Clucci says that line speaks to Biden again and again and again. That portion of The Curate Troy, I think for him, is a touchstone. I think it's one of those things not only the president is like this, but so many <laughs> leaders are like this, is when they found the perfect way of expressing a certain feeling, there's no improving on it, which, you know, it's hard for me to argue with that. Biden is preparing to travel to Ireland to mark the 25th anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement, a peace accord that brought an end to decades of religious and ethnic violence in Northern Ireland. The curate Troy premiered in the midst of the Troubles in 1990. Cahar O'Doherty, the arts and travel editor for the Irish Voice, says it echoed through a divided Ireland and has a universal message. No matter how deeply stuck you feel your country and, and a war might be, there is always the possibility that you can snatch some kind of hope or future or possible way forward. O'Doherty says he's been in many a room when a politician starts talking about hope and history rhyming and everyone just rolls their eyes. But he sees Biden as someone who has lived a life of great joy and great sorrow in the Irish way, something that is given voice by the great Irish poets. It may be a reflex, but I think it's heartfelt. I think that it steers him and steadies him, and it's something that he reaches for the way that the Irish people do themselves. And it goes without saying, odds are in favor of Biden reaching for a lot of Heaney and Yates this week. Tamara Keith, NPR News. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Coming up in about 25 minutes, states can once again begin to remove people from their Medicaid rolls. 15 million people could lose their coverage in the coming months, even if they're eligible to stay on. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Zoo New England. Zoo what makes you happy. Discover incredible wildlife and learn about nature at Boston's Franklin Park Zoo and Stone Zoo in Stoneham. ZooNewEngland.org. The week on Wall Street starts without a lot of movement. The Dow rose three-tenths of a percent. S&P ended one-tenth of a percent. NASDAQ gave up a tiny fraction. Uh, JetBlue Airlines will offer new service from Worcester Airport to Orlando and Fort Myers. Nonstop flights to Orlando will start this summer and operate year-round. Seasonal service to Fort Myers begins in January. Business news comes up on Marketplace, which starts at 6.30. It's now 4.19. WBUR supporters include Semester Off, an education and wellness program in Wellesley, helping college students and high school grads get back on track. Summer semester starts June 5th. Semesteroff.com. And Boston Ballet's Our Journey with La Mer, a world premiere about ocean preservation by choreographer Nanine Linning, now through April 16th, bostonballet.org. 
If you've liked today's weather, you'll really like this week's weather because the sunshine's settling in. Temperatures should move way upward. Tonight's forecast, clear skies falling to the mid-40s, and tomorrow could break into the low 70s. Sunshine galore tomorrow. And for Wednesday, partly sunny, highs about 71. It could even break 80 degrees on Friday. This is 90.9 WBUR, 63 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Bank of America, offering access to resources and digital tools designed to help local to global companies make moves for their businesses. Learn more at bankofamerica.com slash banking for business. And from Indeed, a hiring platform committed to helping businesses of all sizes. Businesses can invite candidates to apply, then schedule and conduct interviews in one place. Indeed.com slash NPR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Andrew Limbong. We've been following the story of a Texas man who's been seeking a million dollars each from three women he says helped his now ex-wife get an abortion. His wrongful death lawsuit is the first of its kind since the Supreme Court curtailed abortion rights last summer. The suit relies heavily on text messages in which the woman shares intimate details with her friends. The case highlights concerns about both digital privacy and reproductive health. And as NPR Sarah McCammon reports, experts say documents related to the case appear to undercut some of the man's claims. Marcus Silva says that last July, just weeks after the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade, the three women helped his then-wife secretly get abortion pills and illegally end her pregnancy. Silva and his lawyers have claimed repeatedly that she took the pills behind his back. Here's one of his attorneys, Peter Breen, speaking to NPR after the lawsuit was filed. There is a, a very strong issue here that a man had a child, he did not know about it, and the child was was killed. So his fatherhood of that child was terminated without even his knowledge. Silva's legal team declined to comment for this story, but Silva made that same claim in his lawsuit, which was filed in Galveston County, Texas in March, a few weeks after the couple's divorce was finalized. In the suit, Silva claims that he, quote, recently learned of the defendant's involvement and says his ex, quote, decided to kill the unborn child without Marcus's knowledge or consent. But several forensic and legal experts interviewed by NPR say key documents related to the case suggest that Silva may have known his then-wife was planning an abortion before it took place by accessing her text messages. Lana Ramjit is director of operations at the Clinic to End Tech Abuse at Cornell, which works to prevent technology-based stalking and abuse. Ramjit says it's hard to know exactly when or how most of the messages, which are included as exhibits in the lawsuit, were captured. And it's unclear who captured them, but there are some clues. Yeah, these are some janky text messages or janky photos of text messages. She says a glare on the screen and what looks like a thumb suggests someone used another device to take pictures of the messages. They are pretty clearly photos of a phone. Ramjit pointed to one message in particular that she says suggests someone photographed it soon after it was sent. The message comes at the end of a long exchange where the women appear to be talking about the need to hide both the pregnancy and the abortion from Silva. The very, very last screenshot that's given in Exhibit 4, where it says today, 6.38 p.m. 
So we know that those photos were taken the same day as the message. Silva's lawyers have declined to say how he got access to the text messages, but a new document obtained by NPR may shed some light on that question. A police report from League City, Texas, dated July 18, 2022, shows Marcus Silva told officers that six days earlier, he found a post-it note in his wife's purse with the phone number for an abortion clinic. Silva said he went through her phone and, quote, saw text messages between his wife and several other people planning the abortion. The next day, July 13, Silva said he went through her purse again and found a white pill with the letters M.F., he searched online, according to the report, and concluded it was the first pill used in the medication abortion process. In other words, mifepristone. It's not clear when exactly the abortion took place. The lawsuit says only that it happened sometime in July. But if Silva knew about the abortion ahead of time, as the police report seems to suggest, that could also undermine his argument that he should be awarded damages, says Mike Golden, director of advocacy at the University of Texas School of Law. If the jury comes to the conclusion that he knew full well that this was going on and did nothing about it, that strongly suggests that he suffered you know, little to no emotional distress as a result of this happening. And Golden also says if Silva got the messages without his wife's consent, that's something else a jury would be likely to look at. Whatever the outcome of this case, the fact that the women's text messages are part of it underscores how digital communication can make people legally vulnerable, says Chinmayi Sharma, a lecturer at the University of Texas School of Law. I think there should be uh, awareness of how big of a risk this is and how much it's not just hypothetical, it is absolutely happening. Sharma, who's also a scholar in residence at UT Austin's Strauss Center for International Security and Law, says people need to be aware of the type of information they're exchanging. You know, I saw that she included her ovulation calendar, which is another thing that is a big concern if you're in a state where the timing of the abortion is relevant. Silva isn't suing his ex-wife because Texas law contains exemptions for people who terminate their own pregnancies. But others can be targeted for helping someone get an abortion. Rusty Hardin, a Houston-based defense attorney, is representing two of the three defendants. He says it's unfortunate that his clients have been caught up in this case for trying to help a friend. It just shows simply these are not simple matters. They are family and personal women issues. And they are not the business of the rest of the world, quite frankly. Silva's lawyer, Peter Breen, has said the lawsuit's goal is to establish that anyone who assists with an abortion in states like Texas, where it's now illegal, could face civil liability or even, he hopes, criminal prosecution. In a recent fundraising message emailed to supporters of his conservative Catholic group, the Thomas More Society, Breen tells readers the lawsuit targets women who helped Silva's wife get an abortion, quote, behind Marcus's back, and describes the lawsuit as groundbreaking. The message asked readers to send their prayers and their donations. Sarah McCammon, NPR News. A dramatic fight is brewing in New York City over a basic question. What should the minimum pay be for workers who deliver food for apps like Uber Eats and DoorDash? The answer turns out to be far from clear, as NPR's Derek Herr reports. Around 100 people raised their hands to speak in a public hearing that spanned more than four hours on Friday. The majority of them were delivery workers who've organized under a group called Los Deliveristas Unidos, the United Delivery Workers. William Medina spoke about the harsh conditions they faced trying to get people food. Me siento expuesto y vulnerable. 
He said he feels exposed and vulnerable on the street, risking his life either in traffic accidents or being robbed. These workers earn an average of $11 an hour, and that's including tips. It's far less than the city's minimum wage. So in 2021, the city passed a law that would give these workers a minimum pay. It estimated that it should be nearly $24 an hour to factor in for things like gas and waiting for food. Anthony Capote, an analyst for the Immigration Research Initiative, says the way companies pay the workers now, which is just for each delivery, is predatory. But it also encourages workers to go out under the most dangerous circumstances during snowstorms, flash floods, heat waves, because that's when they know that they can get the most orders. After months of fighting and lobbying, the city cut the proposed amount to around $19 an hour. Workers and some lawmakers accused it of bowing to pressure from the gig companies. At Friday's hearing, the company said an hourly minimum wage could push costs up for everybody, leading to fewer orders and less work for delivery people. In comments to NPR, Grubhub, DoorDash, and Uber said the rule would restrict worker flexibility. But Antonio Solis, a leader of Los Deliveristas Unidos, said workers should get a fair wage. He says they work 12 to 13 hours a day just to be able to afford a little. Now it's up to New York City's leaders to decide. Dara Kerr, NPR News. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Tonight, when the Red Sox start their series with the Tampa Bay Rays, they'll do it without center fielder Adam Duvall. Duvall hurt his wrist yesterday in the final game with Detroit. Nick Pavetta pitches against Jalen Beeks tonight. Game time is 6.40. Every day this week on WBUR, listen for stories and reflections from people who continue to live with the effects of the marathon bombings 10 years later. Listen for our next report at 4.50 this afternoon and on the WBUR app. This is 90.9 WBUR, 65 degrees now in the Boston area at 4.30. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Cambridge Naturals, offering in-person and online events, including herbal classes, meditations, and more. Calendar at cambridgenaturals.com events. And UMass Chan Medical School, proud to be named one of Boston Globe's top places to work. Learn more at umassmed.edu globe. I'm Tiziana Deering. Tomorrow on Radio Boston, the Commonwealth has ordered a year's supply of an abortion medication, the legal status of which is in question after a ruling from a federal judge in Texas last week. If that seems confusing, it is. Martha Biebinger joins us from the newsroom with more. That's Radio Boston tomorrow at 11, only on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Windsor Johnston. President Biden is once again pushing for tougher gun control measures in the aftermath of today's mass shooting in Louisville, Kentucky. White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre says the administration has repeatedly called for common-sense gun laws that could help prevent future shootings. Today, the president has called on Republicans in Congress to work together with Democrats to take action to ban assault weapons and high-capacity magazines, to require safe storage of firearms, to require background checks for all gun sales. 
A gunman opened fire inside of a bank in Louisville this morning, killing four people and wounding several others, including two police officers. The shooter, who was an employee of the bank, was killed by police in the attack. China says it's completed three days of military exercises around the island of Taiwan. NPR's Anthony Kuhn reports the military drills followed a meeting last week between Taiwan's president Tsai Ing-wen and House Speaker Kevin McCarthy. China's military said in a statement that the drills comprehensively tested the joint combat capability of its different services under actual combat conditions. It added that its troops were ready to crush any acts of Taiwanese separatism or foreign interference with the island which mainland China claims as its own. The exercises included nuclear-capable bombers and an aircraft carrier, and simulated precision strikes as well as a naval and aerial blockade of the island. Japan says the carrier came within about 143 miles of islands belonging to Okinawa Prefecture. It adds that it's been following China's drills around Taiwan with great interest. Anthony Kuhn, NPR News, Seoul. Stocks traded mixed on Wall Street today. The Dow was up 101 points. The Nasdaq fell three. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Massachusetts Governor Maura Healey says the state is stockpiling thousands of doses of a key abortion pill. It comes as future access to the medicine is tied up in federal courts. Here's WBUR's Walter Wuthman. Governor Healey says she asked the University of Massachusetts to put in a large order of mifepristone last week before a federal judge in Texas moved to pause its FDA approval. Mifepristone is part of a two-pill regimen used in nearly half of the abortions conducted in Massachusetts. Healy says the roughly 15,000 doses, more than a year's supply, should arrive in the coming days. So I just want to be clear with the people of Massachusetts. Abortion, medication abortion, will remain safe, legal, and accessible here in the Commonwealth. Healy also signed an executive order giving legal protections to health care providers who prescribe mifepristone. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Walter Wuthman. Eversource customers in Massachusetts can expect to pay less on their natural gas bills this summer. Today, the utility filed its new rate request with state regulators. It says people could see 15 to 20 percent smaller monthly bills compared to last summer. Eversource says the rate drop is due to anticipated lower demand and lower global market prices for natural gas. If approved, the new rates will go into effect May 1st. Massachusetts Attorney General Andrea Campbell is advocating for stronger oversight of long-term care facilities in the state. In testimony at the State House today, she said there's still a lot of work to do in Massachusetts when it comes to protecting and advocating for seniors. We owe our elders more than just our respect, frankly. We owe them an opportunity to live a long and healthy life in the communities they choose, free from hardship caused by scams, fraud, and unequal access to health care. The bill before lawmakers would increase penalties for elder abuse or neglect. It also boosts incentives to attract new workers to the industry. And shuttle buses will replace trains on part of the Blue Line tonight and every night through Thursday. The changes will be in effect from 845 to the end of service between Wonderland and government center stations. The T says the service disruptions are needed for track work. Daytime service won't be affected. Similar changes are set for the week of April 24th. The forecast is on the way. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by MIT Museum, with captivating exhibitions and dynamic programming that turn MIT inside out. Curious what the buzz is about? Plan your visit today. 
Sunshine until sunset tonight. That happens at 20 past 7. Should be about 45 degrees overnight tonight, the chilliest night of the week, likely. Tomorrow, sunshine returns. Could have temperatures peaking at 73 degrees. And then later in the week, more sunshine. Some clouds on Wednesday pulling back to about 71 degrees. Could reach 80 degrees by the end of the week. 63 degrees now in Boston at 435. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Subaru with the 2023 Subaru Forester, featuring standard symmetrical all-wheel drive and safety technology. Love, it's what makes Subaru, Subaru. Learn more at Subaru.com. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. This is NPR. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Andrew Limbong. And I'm Juana Summers. Most medication abortions in the U.S. use two drugs in combination, mifepristone and misoprostol. Now that a federal judge in Texas has ruled the Food and Drug Administration didn't properly approve mifepristone for medical abortions, access to the medication is in jeopardy while the courts sort out legal challenges. But that doesn't mean people seeking this type of abortion are out of options. The status quo has not changed yet. And it is possible to end a pregnancy using just misoprostol, the other drug in the two-drug regimen. Dr. Mara Gordon has been looking into how misoprostol-only abortions work for NPR's SHOTS blog and joins us now. Welcome, Mara. Thanks for having me. So I have to imagine that people listening to this conversation have two top-of-mind questions. The first, is a single-drug abortion safe, and is it effective? So let's start with the first one. In terms of safety, how does it differ from the two-drug method? So there's ample evidence from around the world that the single-drug regimen using mesoprostol only is safe and effective for ending an early pregnancy. Uh, The American College of Obstetricians of Gynecologists says that it's okay. The World Health Organization says it's okay. Basically, all of the experts have weighed in, and they say that if a patient needs to use only mesoprostol to have an early abortion, it is safe. Okay, and what about effectiveness? Is there a difference between the one drug and the two drug methods here? So for all intents and purposes, mesoprostol alone is just as effective as mifepristone plus mesoprostol. This has been studied really widely all over the world in a lot of different settings. And over and over again, we see that mesoprostol alone effectively ends early pregnancies. There's some very, very minor variability in some of the data that has to do with some of the ways that the researchers set up the research questions, um, how they dosed the mesoprostol, how frequently the patients took it, things like that. But now we have a standardized regimen that doctors recommend that uh, patients can be sure is an effective way to end an early pregnancy. Is there anything else that a person who's pregnant should know when they consider undergoing a mesoprostol-only abortion? Well, there are some downsides to the mesoprostol alone protocol, which is why doctors will typically recommend the two-drug regimen if it is available. Uh, The mesoprostol alone regimen, it actually takes fewer hours total than the regimen that combines mifepristone and mesoprostol, but patients tend to experience 
a longer duration of bleeding and cramping. The mesoprostol is really the medicine that has a lot of side effects. Um, and so she needs to take more mesoprostol if she's using a mesoprostol alone abortion. So patients will experience a longer duration of cramping and bleeding, nausea, vomiting sometimes. Um, and so that's why doctors tend to prefer the two drug regimen. And there's also, of course, a question of access as it stands today. Is misoprostol widely available for pregnant people? Absolutely. So the most important thing to know is that medication abortion as of today is still widely available, uh, including mifepristone and mesoprostol. Um, the judge's decision out of Texas is not yet in effect. There's a lot up in the air legally. It's not totally clear if the decision is going to become the law of the land. So for now, Doctors are prescribing mifepristone, patients are taking mifepristone, and they're taking mifepristone to have medication abortions, and they're also taking mifepristone to help with miscarriages. This medication is used for multiple purposes. That's really important to note. And as of today, it is still in widespread use. Misoprostol is also really widely used. Um, it is stocked, I would guess, in almost every labor and delivery unit in the country. It's used to induce labor. Um, very, very common medication. It's also used used to prevent uh, gastric ulcers. So if you're taking too much ibuprofen, your doctor might prescribe misoprostol uh, to help reduce some of the stomach discomfort that you experience with those medications. So misoprostol is everywhere. It's stocked widely in pharmacies. Um, the question just comes down to whether or not abortion is legal and accessible uh, in the state where a patient lives. Dr. Mara Gordon is a family physician in Camden, New Jersey, and an NPR contributor. Thank you so much. Thank you. Texas Governor Greg Abbott says he's working swiftly on a possible pardon that would be for convicted murderer and Army Sergeant Daniel Perry. Friday, a jury found Perry guilty of fatally shooting Garrett Foster, a man who had been taking part in a Black Lives Matter protest back in 2020. But in Texas, the governor can't issue a pardon all on his own. For more on this, we're joined by the Texas Newsroom's Julian Aguilar. Hey Julian. Thank you for having me on. So tell us more about this case. So who is Army Sergeant Daniel Perry and who was the man he's convicted of killing, Garrett Foster? So Daniel Perry, he's a sergeant in the United States military, and he was convicted of murdering Garrett Foster, as you just said. Perry was driving an Uber in July 2020 when Foster was participating in a Black Lives Matter protest in Austin. This followed the murder by police officers of George Floyd. So Foster was carrying an AK-47 long rifle, which is legal in Texas. Um, Perry said Foster raised his weapon, but some witnesses said that was not the case. So Perry, who was also armed, shot and killed Foster. Now, under Texas law, the Castle Doctrine, a Texan can use deadly force to defend themselves or their property at home, work, or in this case, in an automobile. That was Perry's main defense, that he felt threatened. Mm -hmm. uh, but the jury only returned its verdict last week, and Perry is still awaiting sentencing. We know Abbott can't issue a pardon on his own the way a U.S. president could, for instance. Um, and so how does it work? How, what's the process in Texas? Right, that's correct. So the governor, like you said, can't unilaterally pardon someone without a recommendation from the state's uh, board of pardon and paroles. So in a tweet over the weekend, Governor Abbott made it clear that he'd like the board whose member he appoints, whose members he appoints, excuse me, to review that case to see if Perry should be granted a pardon. Um, it's unclear how long that review would take, but Abbott has said, has said that he's asked the board members to fast-track this review and that he would approve this recommendation as soon as it, quote, hits his desk, according to his tweet. Mm -hmm. um, it's also worth noting that the board rejected a posthumous pardon for George Floyd, 
who was convicted of a minor drug conviction in 2004 when he lived in Texas. Hmm. And according to data from the Nonpartisan Council on Criminal Justice, the board recommended 53 clemency grants in 2020 and 75 in 2021. Out of all of those, uh, Abbott only granted 15. What are you hearing in terms of reaction to this effort to pardon Perry? You know, the common theme out there, you know, among legal experts is that this is unprecedented. Uh, Again, Perry hasn't even been sentenced yet, much less gone through the appeals process. And when the governor does grant clemency, it's usually very late in the year, you know, right around December, close to the holiday season. Travis County District Attorney Jose Garza uh, called Abbott's words deeply troubling and said a jury decides whether a defendant is guilty or innocent and not the governor. Um, You know, but it's obvious that Abbott feels pressure from conservative groups and commentators like Fox News host Tucker Carlson. Carlson uh, called the verdict a legal atrocity, Hmm. and he called Abbott out for not appearing on a news show. So less than 24 hours later, during Easter weekend, Abbott called for the board to review this conviction. Julian Aguilar of the Texas Newsroom. Julian, thanks so much. Thanks for having me on. listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. The federal government has lifted a three-year freeze that prevented states from removing people from Medicaid during the pandemic, and states are just beginning the process of assessing whether nearly 100 million low-income Americans still qualify for coverage. Experts worry millions of people who still qualify may be kicked off the rolls. Montana Public Radio's Aaron Bolton explains. At a homeless shelter in Kalispell, Montana, Skip Hazard is getting ready for the day. As he gathers his things, he points out his blue medical boot from a recent surgery. So three toes are gone, and that's from diabetes. Hazard says managing his diabetes and other medical issues has been hard while living in the shelter. He's been grateful for his Medicaid coverage, which pays for that care. But Hazard is worried because he just found out the state is beginning what's known as Medicaid redetermination. Montana will assess whether all 320,000 people on its rolls still qualify for coverage. So I want to know how to get renew it and then all that stuff. The state will automatically renew some people if all of their information is up to date. But it may ask others to provide financial details or things like family size to see if they are still eligible. Nearly everyone at the shelter should qualify for Medicaid coverage. But Jody Wagner, who works at the shelter, worries some here will be disenrolled if they don't respond to important paperwork in the mail. We've been getting quite a bit of mail from Office of Public Assistance every day. Um, We make sure to get it to the ones that are still here, but it's kind of a moving target. Not everybody stays um, for that long of period. And after 30 days, we do send the mail back. While estimates vary, it's expected that roughly 15 million people across the country will lose Medicaid coverage during the redetermination process. Jennifer Tolbert with the Kaiser Family Foundation says that's because some will make too much money to still qualify for Medicaid. But we also know that about half of the people who are expected to be disenrolled will lose coverage despite remaining eligible. 
Tolbert says people on Medicaid face all sorts of barriers when it comes to completing the redetermination process. Maybe they don't get the renewal notice in the mail. Maybe they get it, but they don't really know what the state is asking them to provide in the way of documentation. Or maybe the notice is in a language that they don't speak and so therefore don't understand. Tolbert adds there are 23 million more people on Medicaid compared to pre-pandemic levels. She says state Medicaid offices might not be ready to process that many cases as they grapple with staffing shortages. States like Idaho and Montana are also trying to fast-track the process. That worries Megan DeShong with the Montana Legal Services Association. She says people can fall victim to paperwork errors that incorrectly disenroll them. Her organization does help people appeal decisions and regain coverage. We'll advise and support as many people as we can, but realistically, there just aren't the resources across the state to represent every single person. Missoula, Montana resident Jay Rains, who has diabetes, has experienced paperwork headaches before. He spent months on the phone with Medicaid trying to sort out an error that prevented him from getting supplies for his blood sugar monitor. I really needed close blood sugar monitoring. And I wasn't able to do that. So my blood sugar was like totally out of control. Rains got by because he had a backup plan, but he says losing coverage completely would be life-threatening because he has no ability to replace his insulin. For NPR News, I'm Aaron Bolton in Columbia Falls, Montana. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in the next half hour of All Things Considered, fossil fuels in federal buildings. A law that was passed more than 15 years ago requires new and remodeled federal buildings to stop using fossil fuels by 2030. So far, not a lot's been done. We don't have time for perfection. We need action and we need progress with continual improvement along the way. What Washington has planned to start enforcing the regulations coming up in just about 30 minutes. It's 4.49. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Gore Place and the 36th Annual Sheep Shearing Festival. Sheep shearing and herding demos, fiber artists and more. April 22nd in Waltham, goreplace.org. And Dana-Farber Brigham Cancer Center where everyone on your team specializes in your type of cancer. Learn more at DanaFarberBrigham.org. Such a lovely day today. Overnight tonight, clear skies down around 45. Tomorrow, sunshine returns. Could have temperatures around the low to mid-70s with light breezes. And for Wednesday, sunshine clouds together, pulling back to just about 71 degrees. This is WBUR, 59 degrees now in Boston. WBUR supporters include Waterstone, a new luxury independent and assisted living community with social and wellness programs and fine dining on Watertown Street in Lexington. WaterstoneLexington.com. I'm Tiziana Deering, host of Radio Boston. And if your day is as hectic as mine, it's not a problem because you can download the new and improved WBUR app and never miss a minute of live radio. You can pause and rewind Radio Boston. You can start from the top of the hour, all on your schedule. Listen to all your favorite shows when and how you want. Get the new WBUR app in your app store today. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. It's been nearly 10 years since two bombs exploded at the Boston Marathon. And for the first time, the medical volunteers stationed at the finish line that day 
are speaking publicly. WBR's Martha Biemiger has the story of what they remember about the day and what some of the unexpected after-effects of the trauma have been. This story lasts about six and a half minutes, and some parts of it may be disturbing. April 15, 2013, was a near-perfect race day. Volunteers inside a vast white medical tent at the finish line remember feeling relief. It wasn't hot like the previous year when runners suffering from heat stroke and exhaustion packed the tent. Then, at 2.49 p.m., the first bomb exploded about 75 yards from that tent. Brian Fitzgerald, an athletic trainer, remembers seeing the smoke. A second bomb, not quite a block away, rocked Fitzgerald as he made his way toward a tangle of wood and metal fences. Once you stepped into that, it was a different world. It just shock. Uh, it was like hell. As soon as you walked in, all you could do was smell blood and burning flesh. Yeah, it was horrific. 761 Police on the scene made call after call for more ambulances. One officer pleaded for aid from the marathon's volunteer doctors and nurses. Help up from the medical tent. Get as many people up here as you can from the medical tent. Inside the medical tent, nurse Lynn Landry heard the call for help and glimpsed the unfolding terror. Saw people running by the opening of the tent looking back over their shoulder. The only thing I could think of was 9-11. Still, this veteran nurse left a runner knotted with cramps, grabbed IV supplies, and headed out. And then I saw what everyone else saw on TV, victims coming toward us. I stopped dead and thought, I didn't sign up for this. I don't know if I can do this. Someone pulled Landry away from the pools of blood and ripped clothing, directing her back inside the tent. A woman with shrapnel wounds needed IV fluids while she waited for an ambulance. And I was shaking like a leaf. I got it in and I thought, okay, this is what I'm going to do. Go from one patient to the next to the next and just put in IVs. 22 minutes after that first bomb, emergency responders had sent 97 people to local hospitals. Three people died at the scene. Landry and other clinicians bandaged the less urgent victims and kept tending to runners. They could see news reports on a big screen TV about bomb scares around the city. Got a possible device at 671 Boylston. Possible device. Police detonated at least one other suspicious package not far from the tent. A few medical volunteers fled. Now I could start to feel panic. Chris Troyanos is the marathon's medical coordinator. Because they're coming to me. Where do we go? We're safe. I had no idea. This from a man whose mission for more than two decades had been to address every Boston Marathon medical need and question before it was asked. Not that day. Not that day at all. No, I, and I felt very bad. I couldn't help people. Troyanos did help many, many people on the day of the bombings and for months to come, while police worked to unravel what was behind this act of domestic terrorism. Within the week, the Boston Athletic Association offered debriefing sessions for roughly 1,800 clinicians and more than 10,000 total volunteers to help them process the trauma. Counseling was available for months, Back at work at a local hospital, Landry realized she needed help. Sometimes I would pull back from patients. I thought, how do I know they're not a terrorist? And I thought, oh, this is, this is so wrong. So I went to counseling. 
Eight months later, it was a new year and time to face preparations for the next Boston Marathon. Troyanos needed a rebound strategy. And I'm going, I got to flip the switch. I've got to take more of a defiant approach. Now it's F you to the terrorists. Troyanos helped arrange taped messages from some of the bystanders who'd lost legs, delivering this message to medical tent volunteers. We need you to come back just as strong as ever. Some volunteers took the year off. Troyanos attended one security briefing after another. When the emotion-packed 2014 marathon ended, Troyanos was done too. I, I just didn't think I wanted to do this anymore. And, and not because of the bombing, because it was just, it, it was overwhelming. But out of the fear, anger, and despair that first anniversary kindled, something powerful was taking shape. What Troyanos now calls his race medicine family. He's gathered a few of them for this conversation. It's the first time they've talked at length about the event 10 years ago that forged these bonds. Every one of these people, medical or not, I mean, I trust them with my life. I mean, I know that they're going to do what we need, and I never question it. I don't have to worry about it. The family is 12 to 15 volunteers who travel with Troyanos to a dozen or so races around the country every year. Other members join at each location. They pack the supply trucks, set up cots, run hoses and IV lines. Race day starts with wake-up calls between 3 and 5 a.m. And the race day playlist. I start dancing on the sidewalk yes. before I get in the car at 5 in yeah. the morning. Sarah Menendez is an athletic trainer. She doesn't want to talk about 2013. It was her first year volunteering with the race. That's not a defining moment. We have come together afterwards, and that's what we focus on. With love and humor. At official race family events, for example, everyone wears their lucky red underwear. Since this interview is an official race family event, Landry canvasses the room. So we all have on our reds. Do you have on your red? I sure do. Do you have on your right, Chris? Okay. Laughter and knowing glances travel the room to Emma Nelson, an orthopedic physical therapist. We have to be there. We have to be there for each other. So it's difficult to put into words exactly what it means, but it means everything at the same time. Because together, this family has learned they can face anything. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Martha Biedinger. Coming up tomorrow, Boston hospitals responded to the marathon bombings in a way that's become a model for dealing with mass casualties. But local hospitals are more crowded and shorter staffed today than they were 10 years ago. That's raising questions about how well they could handle a similar emergency. That story's tomorrow on Morning Edition and All Things Considered, here at 90.9 WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Viking committed to exploring the world in comfort, offering a small ship experience with a shore excursion included in every port, destination-focused dining, and programs designed for cultural enrichment. Viking.com. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, 
a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. And from Peacock, with the new original series, Mrs. Davis, about the world's most powerful artificial intelligence and the nun devoted to destroying her. From Tara Hernandez and Damon Lindelof, streams April 20th on Peacock. This is 90.9 WBUR. Glorious April weather. Tonight, skies stay clear. Lows in the mid-40s. Tomorrow, sun's back. Highs venturing to the low 70s. Wednesday, partly sunny, just about 70 degrees. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by La Cuchara Cafe in Melrose. Modern Latin American fare for those seeking flavorful, healthy choices. Catering your office lunch in Greater Boston. LaCuchara.com and A Street Frames, 42 years making frames for galleries, artists, and the public. Museum quality framing and advice in Cambridge and Boston. AStreetFrames.com I'm On Point executive producer Jonathan Dyer, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUH-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Another mass shooting today, this one in downtown Louisville, Kentucky. A 23-year-old bank employee opened fire at his workplace in an attack he live-streamed that left four people dead and nine wounded. The shooter is also dead. It's Monday, April 10th, and you're listening to WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. The latest from Louisville coming up. Massachusetts Governor Maura Healey details the steps the state is taking to ensure access to the abortion drug mifepristone. The idea was stockpile and let's buy up whatever we need to buy up to make sure that people here or people who come here are going to be protected. Also hear from a Nebraska state senator who since February has been filibustering to protest a bill that bans doctors from providing medical care to transgender residents younger than 19. These stories and Wall Street numbers are coming up. It's 5.01. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. Police say a 23-year-old man used a rifle to kill at least four people and wound at least nine others, some critically, at the old National Bank building in downtown Louisville, Kentucky today. The gunman, a bank employee, also died at the scene. Kentucky Governor Andy Beshear says he knew at least two of those killed. Louisville Mayor Craig Greenberg says he's intimately familiar with this kind of violence as well. I'm a survivor of a workplace shooting. To the people who survived, whether you were physically hurt or not, I know that you're hurting too. Police say the victims ranged in age from 40 to 64. Police arrived at the scene within three minutes of the shooting being reported, which happened at about 8.30 a.m. this morning. One of two black state representatives expelled last week from the Tennessee State House appears likely to get his seat back soon, the move coming on the heels of an effort by the body's GOP majority to punish those lawmakers who took to the House floor recently to protest for stricter gun control. Nashville Metro Council could return Justin Jones to the legislature on an interim basis pending a special election. Jones and another black lawmaker were also expelled for their role in the protest in the wake of the deadly school shooting there. Former President Trump has appealed a court order that would require former Vice President Mike Pence to testify before a grand jury looking into Trump's efforts to subvert the 2020 presidential election. 
More from NPR's Ryan Lucas. As Vice President Mike Pence is seen as a key witness to Trump's attempts to remain in office after losing the 2020 election. Justice Department Special Counsel Jack Smith has subpoenaed Pence to appear before the grand jury. Pence and Trump both fought that subpoena on separate legal grounds, with Trump arguing that executive privilege barred Pence from testifying. Late last month, the federal judge in Washington, D.C. rejected Trump's legal argument and ordered Pence to appear before the grand jury, although with some limits. Pence said last week he accepted the ruling and would testify, but now Trump has filed an appeal. Ryan Lucas, NPR News, Washington. Stocks close mixed today as investors await new inflation data. NPR Scott Horsley reports. Investors think the Federal Reserve is likely to raise interest rates again next month in an effort to curb inflation. Odds of another rate hike increased after Friday's solid jobs report showing U.S. employers added 236,000 jobs last month. The Fed will get another key piece of information on Wednesday when the Labor Department reports on what happened to consumer prices in March. Annual inflation has been gradually cooling since last summer, and this week's reports expected to show that trend continued last month. Inflation remains well above the Fed's 2 percent target, though. Some of the nation's biggest banks are set to report first quarter earnings later this week. Bank lending has dropped sharply since the collapse of two regional banks last month. Scott Horsley, NPR News, Washington. The Dow closed up 101 points today. You're listening to NPR News in Washington. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Massachusetts House Speaker Ron Mariano says the House will unveil its tax relief bill tomorrow. Speaking with the reporters today, Mariano did not not provide many details about the package. He says it will be based on some tax code changes lawmakers initially approved last year before they abandoned the proposal. Mariano plans to bring the tax bill to the floor on Thursday. Tuesday, uh, today, that is, is the first day on the job for the MBTA's new general manager. Philip Ang started the day by commuting into work on the blue and green lines. He was hired to help solve the transit system safety and reliability issues. Ang says he plans to show that the agency can indeed make improvements. You'll start to see meaningful improvements. It'll be slow at the beginning, but as you start to see them come, I think people will regain that trust. It's been very frustrating for a lot of folks. I understand that. Ang promises to talk about the issues with the T openly. He says he plans to ride the T nearly every day. Massachusetts is taking steps to ensure access to the abortion drug Mifepristone. Governor Maury Healy announced today the state is stockpiling at least one year's worth of the medication. She also signed an executive order to make clear that providers who prescribe and distribute the drugs are shielded from lawsuit filed from other states where abortion is restricted. Last week, a federal judge in Texas ruled the FDA must suspend its approval of the medication. That ruling is on hold for now and may go before the U.S. Supreme Court. Cambridge officials say a church was damaged extensively by a fire on Easter Sunday. Flames tore through the Faith Lutheran Church on Broadway near Inman Square in Cambridge. Acting Fire Chief Tom Cahill says the fire spread rapidly in part because the building's more than 100 years old. Cahill says it's possible the main building can be saved, but the steeple cannot. The fire, uh, once it got up into that steeple, it did substantial damage to the the structural components. Cahill says the steeple will probably have to be taken down tomorrow. He says some areas inside the church are salvageable, others are not. The cause of the fire is still under investigation. In the forecast, such a beautiful day out there right now. Clear skies overnight tonight. Temperatures in the mid-40s. And for tomorrow, sunshine returns. Could have temperatures peak at 73 degrees. 59 degrees now in Boston. The time is 5.06.
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Workday, committed to helping organizations adapt to change using real-time data to uncover insights, stay decision-ready, and prepare for whatever's next, the finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Andrew Limbong. And I'm Juana Summers. Mifeprestone, on the market for more than 20 years in the U.S., is used in most medication abortions in the country. However, on Friday, a federal judge in Texas ruled that the Food and Drug Administration didn't properly approve this drug decades ago. Today, the Justice Department asked a federal appeals court to put the decision on hold. Adam Unikowski, who formerly clerked for Justice Antonin Scalia, is in private practice. He read the ruling and wrote about it over the weekend, concluding that the decision is indefensible and it's not legally sound. Adam Unikowski, welcome to All Things Considered. Uh, Good afternoon. Thank you for inviting me. So let's just start off with your assertion that the plaintiffs here don't have any standing. Start off by explaining to us what that is legally and why do they not have standing? Sure. So the plaintiffs in this case, who are organizations of pro-life doctors, uh, can't sue to overturn the FDA's approval of mifepristone unless they can show that they're harmed by it. However, these doctors do not prescribe mifepristone to their patients. It's other doctors who do. So the plaintiffs alleged that they were harmed because, hypothetically, uh, another doctor will prescribe mifepristone to their patient. That patient is going to have an adverse reaction. That patient will then switch doctors, go to one of the doctors who are plaintiffs in the case, which will in turn cause harm to the doctor treating that patient. And I simply think that's, that's too speculative and too conjectural to establish standing under the Supreme Court's precedence. You also make the argument that this decision isn't timely. We should point out that mifepristone was approved by the FDA back in the year 2000. How does this issue of timeliness hurt the plaintiff's argument or the judge's ruling here? Yeah, so um, the, the plaintiff or one of the plaintiffs filed a, a petition challenging the FDA's decision, which was denied in March of 2016. So they had six years until March of 22 to file a lawsuit, and they didn't file a lawsuit in that span. They filed in, on, in November of 22. And so the statute of limitations has expired on the suit, in my view. Uh, the district judge disagrees, concluding that the FDA reopened the issue in 2016 and 2021, but I simply don't agree with that ruling. I don't see anything in the decisions from 2016 or 2021 purporting to reopen the FDA's 2000 decision to approve mifepristone. I mean, I am not a legal expert, but for me, this raises a question about the implications for the FDA's regulatory authority. And it seems like there could possibly be far-reaching impacts beyond just this one drug. I think that's the case for a couple of reasons. First of all, the judge's ruling that a, a change uh, to the uh, conditions uh, on the use of a particular drug reopens the underlying approval um, would certainly uh potentially undermine the FDA's regulatory regime. Uh, As well, the court essentially overturns the FDA's decision fundamentally because the court disagrees with the agency's judgment. But uh, in federal administrative law, courts are generally supposed to defer to the expert judgments of agencies. They have the authority to overturn agencies, but they have to do that sparingly. And the judge's willingness to overturn the agency's decision in my view, effectuates a significant transfer of power from the FDA to the judiciary. Now, the Justice Department has today filed an emergency stay motion with the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals seeking to block this order, striking down the FDA's approval of mifeprestone. Tell us what that means legally and where things stand today. The federal district court 
uh, delayed the effect of its order for one week. He stayed the effect of his order until this coming Friday, uh, this week. And so the Justice Department has asked the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals to uh, stay the district judge's ruling for more than, than one week. In fact, stay for the entire pendency of the appeal. So today, the Justice Department filed its motion, and then the plaintiffs will file its response. And I expect we'll get a ruling from the Fifth Circuit fairly quickly. Since this news broke on Friday and over the weekend, there's been a lot of discussion about these two dueling decisions on this abortion pill, one in Texas that we've just been discussing, as well as a counter move by a Democratic attorney general in Washington state, a different ruling on the same drug. And I think for many people, that's that's brought up some confusion about what what is actually happening here. Can you talk a little bit about how these two rulings interplay? Sure. So uh, the the ruling in Washington uh, is an order that preserves the status quo. And it's actually not entirely clear how the rulings fit together. In fact, I understand that the Justice Department has asked the court in Washington to clarify its order and uh, explain how it relates to the Texas order. So at, at this point, I think that there's a certain amount of uncertainty. As a factual matter, I expect both of the orders to go up to, you know, the relevant appellate courts perhaps eventually to the Supreme Court in fairly short order, which which should issue some clarity. I would say right now the situation is is not entirely clear. Adam Unikowski writes Adam's legal newsletter on Substack and is in private practice. Adam, thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you. Nebraska lawmakers haven't passed a single bill this session. That's because State Senator Michaela Kavanaugh has filibustered on the floor of the state legislature for more than a month, just like she promised to do back in February. If this legislature collectively decides that legislating hate against children is our priority, then I am going to make it painful, painful for everyone. She's referring to LB 574, or the Let Them Grow Act, and she uses the word hate to describe that bill deliberately. These bills don't come from a place to elevate a specific community. They come from a place of trying to eradicate their existence. And all I can think of is that that is a very hateful way to do public policy. So, you know, to be concise, that's legislating hate. Under the bill's current version, physicians would be barred from providing gender-affirming procedures and medical care for Nebraska residents younger than 19. Michaela Kavanaugh joined us last week during a brief legislative recess, and I began by asking her, what is it like physically to filibuster up to 12 hours a day? Very tiring. <laughs> Very I can imagine, yeah. mentally and emotionally tiring trying as much as I can to stay on topic of whatever the piece of legislation is that's in front of me. And when I can't, I just talk about whatever it is I feel like talking about. Yesterday, I spent a lot of time talking about Easter Sunday and my love of au gratin potatoes. (laughs) (laughs) They are quite delicious. They are. And um, I generally spend some amount of time speaking about the bill that I'm actively opposing, LB 574. But other than that, I just kind of go with the flow and whatever inspires me at the moment. You have said that you will, quote, burn the session to the ground over this bill. I'm just wondering, do you worry that by holding up so much of the legislative session, by slowing it down so drastically, that that will prevent other important issues, other important bills from being debated and passed this session? Well, I'm not in charge of the schedule. 
the speaker is in charge of the schedule and he belongs to the majority party and they are setting the agenda of what we are accomplishing this session which is part of my intention is to force them into deciding what it is that they believe we should be doing as a legislature and as such we're not going to pass as many bills as we might in other years but we are going to have to think about what it is we pass and what is important to us and what we value and that is going to be reflected back to the people of Nebraska. So far, but are you worried about alienating voters who might have other issues they want to see advanced? I am worried about <laughs> I am worried about the economy and I think that there are some very significant important pieces of legislation that we should be focused on and I have been encouraging my colleagues and leadership to schedule those bills and to come and talk about that. They are choosing to prioritize legislating hate over the economic well-being of the state. That is a choice that they are making. They have the power and the ability to schedule bills that will move our economy forward, that will address childcare subsidies, food insecurity, education, and the people in power need to start standing up and making choices that are best for Nebraska. Well, let me ask you, on the federal level, the Biden administration recently proposed a new federal rule change that would allow for schools to enforce some restrictions on transgender student athletes, but it opposes categorical bans. In your mind, is that enough to protect trans students' rights? I don't know why, as a nation, as policymakers, there is this new found focus on trans children. Trans children have always existed. They have always lived in our society, in our schools, in our families. And all of a sudden, there is a decision by policymakers that we need to do something about them. And so I don't think any policies that restrict the rights of children because they are trans are appropriate. And I don't support any policies that restrict the rights of children. And I would like to see all of our policymakers stepping out of the bathroom, stepping out of the doctor's room, and getting back to policy. And I'm disappointed that we continually don't do that. So do you see yourself filibustering on the floor up to 12 hours a day, day after day, forever? I mean, is there an um, endpoint in your mind? I would love for there to be an endpoint. That is what I hope for every single day. It is what I am striving for every single day. Unfortunately, some of my colleagues have just really dug in on this and they don't want there to be an endpoint. So I don't know the answer, but I really hope that we can find a resolution that's best for the trans youth of Nebraska because they don't deserve this. They really don't deserve this. That is Nebraska State Senator Michaela Cavanaugh. Thank you very much and be well as you continue. Thank you. That is Nebraska State Senator Michaela Cavanaugh. Her filibuster of LB 574 is now in its seventh week. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. 
This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in about 15 minutes, the U.S. government is investigating a leak of classified documents that appear to give a snapshot of the intelligence community's understanding of the world in late February and early March. The week on Wall Street starts without a lot of movement. The Dow rose three-tenths of a percent. S&P ended one-tenth of a percent higher. The Nasdaq gave up a tiny fraction. The average price of gasoline in Massachusetts has jumped seven cents a gallon since last week. A survey by AAA Northeast shows the statewide average at 3.34 a gallon. AAA says the spike is a result of the oil cartel OPEX announcement that it will cut production by a million barrels a day. The cost of oil accounts for half the price we pay for gasoline at the pumps. The rest is mostly for refining and distribution. It's 519. WBUR supporters include Cambridge Naturals, with over 300 bulk items, including culinary spices, medicinal herbs, and household staples. CambridgeNaturals.com. And Office of the Massachusetts State Treasurer. Check to see if you have unclaimed property at FindMassMoney.com. If you're used to watching TV when and how you want, well, now you can do the same thing with listening to the radio. You can pause and rewind live radio with the new WBOR app. Download it at the App Store. In the forecast, beautiful week coming up. Sunshine settling in and uh, overnight tonight. Temperatures should move to the mid-40s with clear skies. Then tomorrow, breaking into the low 70s, sunshine in full force. This is WBUR in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Bank of America, offering access to resources and digital tools designed to help local to global companies make moves for their businesses. Learn more at bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness. And from Indeed, committed to helping businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates. Businesses can invite candidates to apply, then schedule and conduct virtual interviews all in one place. Indeed.com slash NPR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Andrew Limbong. Police in Louisville, Kentucky are investigating this country's latest mass shooting. It happened this morning at a bank. Authorities say a gunman described as a bank employee entered and began firing. He killed four people before police say they shot and killed him. Nine others were taken to the hospital, including three police officers. We're going to get the latest now from reporter Justin Hicks of Louisville Public Media. Hi, Justin. Hey there. So what information do we have at this point about what happened? So we know that Louisville Metro Police Department said it received a call about 8.38 this morning of shots fired inside Old National Bank. There's also some condo units and other businesses in this multi-story building that the bank is in. But the shooting was confined to that bank. Hmm. LMPD says officers arrived within just three minutes and almost immediately encountered a suspect who fired at them with a rifle. They exchanged gunfire with that person and killed him. Two police officers were shot. Another was injured during the incident. One of them was rushed to the hospital in critical condition. Now, in total, five people died, including the gunman, and they were all employees of the bank. And what do we know about the victims? So their names are 63-year-old Tommy Elliott, 64-year-old Jim Tut, 40-year-old Joshua Barrick, and 57-year-old Juliana Farmer. In addition to those who were killed, nine people were taken to the hospital with injuries ranging from minor to critical. And one of those people that was injured is an officer uh, identified as Nicholas Wilt, 
26 years old, and he had just graduated from the police academy less than two weeks ago. He was shot in the head and underwent emergency brain surgery. What do we know, if anything, about the gunman? Like, who was he, and do we know anything about a motive? Yeah, we know a little bit. So police have identified the gunman as Connor Sturgeon. They said he's a white male in his mid-20s, and he was an employee of the old National Bank. They also confirmed he was live streaming during the incident, Hmm. but they wouldn't answer any questions about the motives. uh, And they said that he had no previous run-ins with police. It ends up that Kentucky Governor Andy Beshear has a personal connection to this event. What are the details there? Yeah, so Governor Bashir addressed the media right after the shooting, and he was visibly shaken. He said he ran his 2015 campaign for state attorney general out of that building where the shooting happened, and he actually banked at that exact same branch. Hmm. Uh, he described one of the victims, Tommy Elliott, uh, as a close personal friend. Elliott was a senior vice president at the bank, and he was also very involved in politics. Tommy Elliott helped me build my law career. Helped me become governor. Gave me advice on being a good dad. It's one of the people I talk to most in the world, and very rarely were we talking about my job. He was an incredible friend. How are people feeling in in Louisville right now? Well, crazy enough, not long after this bank shooting, about a mile away, there was yet another shooting at a community college campus. And one person there was killed and another injured. It's unrelated to what happened to the bank, but these two shootings were in the heart of Louisville, right downtown, and it's left people on edge. One of my colleagues spoke to Karen Anderson, a line cook at a restaurant near the bank. Anderson called it a sort of new trend where you never really know if you're safe. I just woke up thinking I'm going to go straight to work, get hammered on the line. Next thing you know, I come out, it's a crime scene. And when I heard that a lady saw a man on the ground, I knew it didn't go right. So, I mean, like I said, it's just sad that you got to go through this almost every day. Like it's a new trend now that everybody just keeps getting killed and hurt. So all in all, investigators say it's going to take a long time before they can understand what happened and exactly why. Justin Hicks of Louisville Public Media. Thanks so much. Of course. You're welcome. Buildings are a big source of climate warming greenhouse gases. That's why a favored solution these days is to switch from burning natural gas in buildings to cleaner forms of electricity. Fifteen years ago, Congress passed a law requiring the federal government to lead the way on that switch. But as NPR's Jeff Brady reports, a key part of the law was never implemented. The law is the Energy Independence and Security Act of 2007. President George W. Bush signed it, and deep inside, there's one section requiring the government to eliminate fossil fuels from federal buildings by the end of the decade. But you need regulations to implement a law, and the Department of Energy never finalized them in this case. So instead of getting rid of gas appliances, there are federal buildings installing new ones. Welcome to the Liberty Bell. At Philadelphia's Independence National Historical Park, there's a plan to disconnect from a citywide steam loop that heats buildings and install gas-fired boilers. In front of Independence Hall, where the Declaration of Independence and the U.S. Constitution were signed, Alex Baumstein of the Clean Air Council says this is the opposite of what lawmakers intended. While this is a building that represents independence, freedom from oppression, we're talking about locking ourselves in to dirty fossil fuels. At least until the next time furnaces are replaced, which could be decades from now. The National Park Service says the planned boilers are more efficient than the existing system, and it says the project passed all legal and contracting requirements. 
But without Energy Department regulations, it's difficult for agencies to follow that 2007 fossil-free federal buildings requirement. Yeah, 2007, that was 15 years ago, right? Julie Hiramoto is a member of the American Institute of Architects, which has been the leading advocate for this section of the law. Many of her colleagues are committed to designing carbon-neutral buildings, and she says the federal government could advance the technologies and bring down costs for everyone. Well, I think it's really important to lead by example. And the General Services Administration, the GSA, is the largest property owner and manager. That federal agency does not track compliance with the 2007 law. But through other directives, the GSA says it has cut greenhouse gas emissions by more than half since 2008. But that 2007 requirement is a law, one that has not been followed and that gas utilities are still lobbying to repeal. We're opposed to the provision. We think natural gas can and should be a part of our energy's future. Dave Shriver heads the American Public Gas Association, which represents municipal gas utilities. This ban runs counter to uh, an all-of-the-above energy policy, um, which we believe benefits our country. So we've worked to fix this legislatively through Congress. Uh, Unfortunately, we haven't had as much success as we would like, but it's something we continue to work on. Scientists and energy modelers say to meet the country's climate goals, switching from burning gas in buildings to cleaner electricity must be a priority. So now the Energy Department is once again drafting regulations to implement the 15-year-old requirement to get fossil fuels out of federal buildings. The agency is taking a more narrow view of the law this time, counting only fuels used on-site and not how energy is produced on local electrical grids or steam loops. Still, Hiramoto with the American Institute of Architects supports the proposed rules. We don't have time for perfection. We need action and we need progress with continual improvement along the way. There's a bigger lesson for climate advocates. Passing major legislation like the Inflation Reduction Act last year is just the start, says Congressional Attorney Alexandra Teets. But to make a difference, we have to seize that opportunity and do the work to bring the benefits into the real world. That means finishing regulations that make it possible for agencies to follow new climate laws. The Department of Energy is doing that now. Proposed regulations for the 2007 law were released in December. The department is reviewing comments, but no timeline has been set for finishing the regulations. Jeff Brady, NPR News. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Tonight, when the Red Sox start their series with Tampa Bay Rays, they'll do it without center fielder Adam Duvall. Duvall hurt his wrist yesterday in the final game with Detroit. Nick Pavetta pitches against Jalen Beeks down in Florida. 6.40 game time. If you like today's weather, you'll really like this week because the sunshine's settling in and temperatures should move upward. Tonight's forecast, clear skies in the mid-40s. Then tomorrow should climb to the mid-60s. Sunshine in full force tomorrow. And then for Wednesday, partly sunny skies still in the mid-60s could warm to the low 70s on Thursday. 59 degrees now in Boston. The time is 5.30. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum. Experience springtime like nowhere else. See the bright orange nasturtiums in full bloom in Isabella's courtyard, gardnermuseum.org. And Cambridge School of Culinary Arts in Porter Square, with private cooking events for team building, family reunions, birthday parties, or nights out. cambridgeculinary.com. 
At NPR, we don't just sit in the host chair. We take the shows to the news and find the voices you need to hear. We're reporters at heart. I'm Leila Falden, host of Morning Edition. I've covered everything from a coup in Egypt to the killing of George Floyd in Minneapolis to the war in Ukraine. And I want to remind you that your old car could help keep that work going. Donate it to this station and it will go towards keeping our reporters in the field. Here's how. Learn more at WBUR.org cars. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Windsor Johnston. President Biden will travel to the United Kingdom and Ireland this week. His four-day trip will include a stop in Belfast to mark the 25th anniversary of the signing of a peace agreement that helped to end decades of sectarian violence. White House spokesman John Kirby says the president will reaffirm U.S. support for Northern Ireland and note the progress made since then. President Biden cares deeply about Northern Ireland and has a long history of supporting peace and prosperity there. As a U.S. Senator, Joe Biden was an advocate for how the United States could play a constructive role supporting peace. Later this week, Biden will travel to Dublin to address Ireland's parliament. He'll also visit two Irish counties where he has family roots. With future access to a common abortion pill tied up in federal courts, the governor of Massachusetts says the state is stockpiling thousands of doses. Walter Wuthman from member station WBUR reports a judge in Texas last week issued a ruling that would suspend the FDA's approval of the medication nationwide. Governor Moore Healy says she asked the University of Massachusetts to put in a large order of mifepristone last week before a federal judge in Texas moved to pause its FDA approval. Mifepristone is part of a two-pill regimen used in about half of all abortions nationwide. It's also used to help manage miscarriages. Healy says roughly 15,000 doses should arrive in the coming days. So I just want to be clear with the people of Massachusetts. Abortion, medication abortion, will remain safe, legal, and accessible here in the Commonwealth. Washington State also moved to stockpile Mifepristone last week. For NPR News, I'm Walter Wuthman in Boston. Stocks traded mixed on Wall Street today. The Dow Jones Industrial Average was up 101 points. The Nasdaq Composite down three. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. The city of Boston is honoring the late Mel King. A public viewing and visitation is underway now through 8 tonight at the Union United Methodist Church in Boston. Earlier this afternoon on City Hall Plaza, Boston Mayor Michelle Wu presided over a wreath-layering ceremony for King. We hereby do proclaim April 11, 2023 to be a citywide day of remembrance and celebration for the life and legacy of the Honorable Melvin Mel H. King. Mayor Wu said the late civil rights activist, community leader, and politician broke down many walls and barriers in the city. Mel taught us all how to serve, how to build, how to love, and how to envision a Boston that could truly be a home to everyone. Mel King died March 28th at the age of 94. His funeral is set for noontime tomorrow. Today marks the beginning of a new chapter for the MBTA. New General Manager Philip Eng started his job today. WBR's Andrea Perdomo-Hernandez caught up with Eng after he commuted to his job for the first time. The new GM started his first day by riding the system. He says he took the blue line and transferred to the green line to meet reporters at Park and Tremont Streets. Eng says he spoke with commuters along the way. I had a nice mix of folks who have been riding regular, visitors that are visiting Boston, as well as future employees. 
Ang says making the troubled system more reliable, safe and efficient won't happen overnight. As we restore the service, I think things will start to turn. We're confident that we'll do that. It's just a matter of how fast we can do it. And it obviously sooner rather than later is the preference. Ang says hiring staff and promoting transparency within the authority are among his top priorities. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Andrea Perdomo-Hernandez. The governor's office is making $1.3 billion available for wastewater and drinking water infrastructure projects in Massachusetts. The money will come in the form of low-interest loans and grants. It can be used for planning and construction of projects designed to improve water quality or cut treatment plant energy use. State officials say 185 projects across the state are eligible for the funding. The forecast is coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Worcester Cultural Coalition. Worcester Hip Hop Congress aims to create positive social change through education, self-expression, and community building. WorcesterCulture.org. Sunshine until sunset tonight, and that happens at 20 past 7. Starlit skies overnight, lows in the mid-40s. For tomorrow, bright sunshine should climb to the mid-60s. And for Wednesday, partly sunny, the mid-60s once again. 58 degrees now in Boston at 535. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from BritBox with the Confessions of Franny Langton. One woman's story of courage, murder, and forbidden love in this new original drama. Available to stream at BritBox.com NPR. And from iDrive, providing cloud backup, full system backup, and on-site iDrive appliance to protect PCs, Macs, and servers from data loss due to crashes and ransomware at iDrive.com. This is NPR. This is All Things Considered. From NPR News, I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Andrew Limbong. The U.S. government is investigating a leak of classified documents that appear to give a snapshot of how the intelligence community saw the world in late February and early March. That includes the war in Ukraine, Chinese influence on global technology, terrorism, and more. Oddly enough, the documents were first spotted on a social media platform that's mostly used for gaming. NPR's Jenna McLaughlin is here to tell us more about this leak investigation. Hi, Jenna. Hey, Andrew. So the New York Times broke this story when these documents were spreading in Russian social media circles last week. But it sounds like the story is a little bit more complicated, right? Can you tell us a little bit about how this started? Yeah, so it does appear that this leak got the attention of the Pentagon when it reached the messaging app Telegram, which has a lot of different public channels you can join, and that includes a lot of pro-Russian groups. The Pentagon was forced to kind of accusing Russia that, you know, they had leaked those documents because some of them appeared in those groups, and a handful of them appeared sloppily altered to favor Russian narratives. But, you know, there were immediately a lot of weird details going on. The documents are all photographs of printed pages, Hmm. which makes it seem like they weren't hacked or stolen. And it turns out that it was just a portion of the total leaked documents. Once the open source community started digging, it quickly became clear that Telegram actually wasn't the original source. All right. So say more. Where did this trail lead? Yeah, so after the story first broke, NPR and others found the same documents on 4chan posted earlier in March, Mm -hmm. and then even more on Discord, which is a social media messaging app that's pretty popular with gamers. Mm -hmm. Then pretty much a group of us journalists, open source researchers, and random internet users, frankly, were chasing leads in real time together. Yeah, wow. So, So what'd you find? 
So I kind of got actively involved in the hunt. I got on Discord and confirmed that some of the documents were posted in a server dedicated to the game Minecraft, which is a game where you can build your own world. They didn't exactly greet me with open arms. <laughs> no, I can imagine um, that, yeah. I, I briefly messaged with the user who had originally posted them, and while he was kind enough to tell me where he had gotten them from, he promptly blocked me. Uh, that led me down to another Discord server dedicated to a popular Filipino YouTuber. What seemed to be a young man in Southern California had posted them to that server. But within minutes, users on the channel blocked me as well. They were all kind of yelling and screaming about concern that pro-Ukrainian social media narcs were coming in to infiltrate their platform. Uh, but by the time I got kicked off, the young man was still tweeting about how he found documents, and he said that he got them from another since-deleted channel on Discord. So it's impossible to really prove where they came from before that. As you can see, it's a real rabbit hole, mm -hmm. uh, but that hasn't stopped us from trying to find out more. My colleague Jeff Brumfield and I have been trying to spot things in the background of the leaked photos to find clues, including Gorilla Glue, a user manual for a hunting scope, toenail clippers, and potentially a pamphlet about archery. So putting together those clues, it seems like maybe someone in the U.S. who's a fan of hunting. All right, so what about the documents themselves? Like, Just how damaging does this leak seem? It's not totally clear yet. Uh, some Discord users did say that they saw other documents released as early as January, which could suggest that the source has more prolonged access, but I haven't seen proof of that. NPR has access to about 40 of these documents from late February and early March, so they are very current and now, and the subjects are really wide-ranging. They mention sensitive things like Russian cyber operations, as well as South Korean officials' private hesitation and conversations about sending artillery to Ukraine, for example. Then again, it really is just a snapshot in time. It's certainly embarrassing for the U.S. government, and it gives enemies and allies alike some hints about how the U.S. knows about their internal conversations, maybe even how much they know, how they got there. But it, it doesn't even go into detail about how those U.S. operations are run, similar to what we saw with the Snowden leaks and the Vault 7 leaks about CIA hacking tools. Mm -hmm. So the source and the impact remain pretty uncertain, but there's wide government concern about the leak. And and a manhunt is underway. That was NPR's Jenna McLaughlin. Jenna, thanks so much. Thank you. The Catholic Archdiocese of Oklahoma City wants to create a publicly funded religious charter school. And that's a big deal because it would be the nation's first. But opponents say it would open the door to discriminatory policies and unconstitutional religious education. State Impact Oklahoma's Beth Wallace explains the cases for and against the school. Tomorrow, Oklahoma's statewide virtual charter school board is likely to vote on an application from St. Isidore of Seville Virtual Catholic Charter School to become an online public charter school. In Oklahoma, charter schools are publicly funded like traditional public schools and don't require teachers to be certified. The plan calls to offer online courses for kindergarten through 12th grade. Proponents say the program would help rural Catholic families who live far away from brick-and-mortar schools to have access to Catholic education. But whatever the board decides it's likely to prompt years of litigation. And that follows a stream of lawsuits that have led to this moment. This is Oklahoma Attorney General Gettner Drummond. If the application is accepted, it will almost certainly be challenged by public school groups that don't believe that state taxpayer dollars should go to fund sectarian education. 
Ultimately, the question at the heart of the controversy is, are charter schools subject to the same regulations as traditional public schools? Drummond says they should be. He threw out the previous attorney general's opinion that was in support of St. Isidore's application. There are a couple of cases that have opined that charter schools are public schools using public funds. And then when I look at Oklahoma's constitution, our public school system shall be open to all children and be free from sectarian control. Brett Farley is the executive director of the Catholic Conference of Oklahoma. He says three central Supreme Court cases in the last decade have paved the way for a new frontier of publicly funded religious schools. In our opinion, they all seem to be pointing in one direction, and that is that, as they've said, and as they've said now three times, uh, if a state has a, a program generally available that is state-funded, then they cannot prohibit a religious institution from participating in that program simply because they're religious. But opponents worry this kind of religious participation could lead to discrimination. In its application, the school claims an exemption to regulations inconsistent with the Catholic Church. Sherry Brown is the legislative chair of the Oklahoma Parent Legislative Action Committee, a group that seeks to bolster public schools and promote equitable access for all students. And at February's statewide virtual charter school board meeting, Brown highlighted that issue of equitable access. Will LGBTQ plus students or their families be excluded? Will students who become pregnant be expelled? Do not sacrifice constitutional rights at the altar of school choice. Asked about potential discrimination, Farley says the school isn't speaking to hypotheticals, and they've been too focused on the application process to start in on admissions policies. But he says state statute is clear, the school intends to operate within the law, and that Supreme Court precedents back up their position. I'm not going to address the specifics of any particular case because, A, we don't have those cases in front of us, and B, those are very individualized cases, um, and so we, we will address those at that time. Oklahoma's virtual charter school board meets tomorrow afternoon, and no matter how the vote goes, lawsuits are likely on the way. For NPR News in Tulsa, I'm Beth Wallace. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Rural parts of the U.S. aren't exactly known for robust public transportation systems, but as more residents get older, the need is increasing. Harvest Public Media's Elizabeth Rembert reports. A white van braves country roads with flying gravel in northeast Nebraska to get to a house surrounded by fields with wind chimes on the outside. The driver sets down a ramp for Joel Tyndall, who guides his electric wheelchair up and into the van. Tyndall manages his diabetes with three dialysis appointments a week. He needs a little help making the two-hour round trip to the clinic in Norfolk, so he calls Cedar County Transit. These guys help me out more than you would believe. I mean, I am double amputee above the knee, so... But he's still able to get to his medical appointments, run errands, and even see friends and family, all from the rural home he's known for years. They asked me, why don't I move down to Norfolk? And I said, I'm going to leave my home and all this. I said, no, I've got this. As long as this transit continues to run, I'll be using it for just about everything, you know. Now it's time to get buckled in and head to dialysis. 
All right, we got your heat boat, we got your blue scrubs. Have a good trip. Karen will take you there. Since 1980, Cedar County has had some level of public transit. It sort of works like a rural Uber. Anyone can call to schedule a ride, as long as it's within 200 miles and on a weekday from 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. Riders pay anywhere from $3 for a nearby destination to $75 for a 400-mile trip. Federal funding provides the bulk of transit budgets, with local and state dollars making up the rest. Services like these make the difference for folks like Tyndall. A third of state rural health offices said transportation was the number one barrier to people staying in their homes. That's despite it being a relatively common resource across the country. The U.S. Department of Transportation reports 82% of counties nationwide had some level of rural transit available in 2019. Carrie Henning-Smith researches rural health at the University of Minnesota and says providing transit is a hard gig. There's greater need for transportation among older adults in rural communities, but more transportation challenges in getting people where they need to go. And she's quick to point out, 82% of counties having transit means there's still 18% that don't. Cherry County in western Nebraska was one of those counties. For years, it hasn't had any public transit available. Peg Snell manages the Independent Living Center in Valentine, the county's biggest town. Something snapped in her when she saw elderly residents walking in the heat to get to the hospital. And I'm like, this is wrong. You know, this is wrong. Snell knew something had to change, so she pushed city officials to ask a western Nebraska agency to expand their services into town. Not long after, big white buses started appearing on Valentine's streets. It's made all the difference for Jim Ducey. He uses a bike to get around, and this snowy winter has been tough. If not for the bus, he's not sure he could have stayed in his home. I did not want to leave Valentine. I'm still here, and that is because the transit service arrived at the perfect time. Right now, the buses only run within city limits, just a small part of Cherry County. But they hope it's only the beginning. For NBR News, I'm Elizabeth Rembert. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up on All Things Considered, weighing in on the new controversial season of the HBO series Succession. That's coming up next. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software for technical computing and model-based design, accelerating the pace of discovery in engineering and science, MathWorks.com. Five people are dead and several more have been injured during a shooting at a bank in downtown Louisville. We'll have the latest at the top of the hour here at 90.9 WBUR. In the forecast, looks like a really lovely week coming up. Sunshine has settled in. Overnight tonight, clear skies, temperatures in the mid-40s. And for tomorrow, should climb to the mid-60s, bright sunshine. And for Wednesday, some clouds along with the sunshine. Temperatures in the mid-60s could warm to the low 70s on Thursday. 58 degrees now in Boston. This is 90.9 WBUR. It's 549. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Comcast Business. With the Comcast Business Complete Connectivity Solution, it's cybersecurity, internet, and mobile, all from Comcast Business, powering possibilities. I'm Tiziana Deering. 
Tomorrow on Radio Boston, the Commonwealth has ordered a year's supply of an abortion medication, the legal status of which is in question after a ruling from a federal judge in Texas last week. If that seems confusing, it is. Martha Biebinger joins us from the newsroom with more. That's Radio Boston tomorrow at 11, only on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Andrew Limbong. Okay, straight up, if you watched Succession and haven't caught up to last night's episode, please dip out now to save yourself from huge spoilers. We'll be talking about it for about like eight minutes, so feel free to come back then. Cool? We good? Okay, here we go. Logan Roy, the media mogul, the patriarch of the Roy family, arguably the center of gravity for the show, has died. And now his four kids, Connor, Kendall, Roman, and Siobhan, have got to figure out where to go from here. To help us grieve, process, and place bets on who will be the successor, we're going to hit up the group chat. We've got NPR TV critic Eric Deggins and Linda Holmes from NPR's Pop Culture Happy Hour. Hey, everyone. What's up? Hey, Andrew. Hey. All right. So I know I just did like a whole windup about a huge spoiler, but... His death was sort of inevitable, right? I mean, it's the whole point of the show, who takes over when Logan is gone. Add to it that this is the final season. I'm not sure if surprise is the right word for it. Linda, what'd you make of it? Yeah, when I recapped this episode uh, at NPR.org, my first line of that was, I wasn't surprised, but I was shocked. And it's sort of because long form, not surprised at all. This has kind of been what they've been promising since the the first episode of the show. It's in the title of the show, arguably, that eventually this guy moves on and they move in to succeed him, literally. But in the short run, they had been setting up a bunch of stuff that seemed like it was about to happen, business stuff, personal stuff. And then him dying just kind of comes out of nowhere. So it's a combination of not surprising generally, but surprising that it was this episode. Third episode is not a notoriously giant development episode. Yeah, Eric, I was going to ask, like, structurally speaking, to have something like this happen you know, we're not at, the, at a season ender. We're not like a mid. We're not going to go a mid season break. You know, <laughs> right? Um, so, w- what did you think of like when and how the writers sort of deployed this bomb? Well, I thought it was super bold. I mean, I could not believe that they killed him three episodes into the final season, and I think we'll probably have at least another seven episodes to go. But what's interesting to me about this is that we had all this foreshadowing that uh, Logan was having health problems, that he might actually die. And you also saw over the seasons, this guy was his company. There was really no way he was going to leave it. There was even no way he would be happy with a smaller company, which is what he would have ended up with after he pulled off this mega deal where he was going to sell off key elements of the company. He wouldn't have been satisfied. And, And it seemed like they were indicating that the stress of facing that reality was ultimately what did him in. And he was like a hamster on a wheel or he was, you know, you could tell that the tension of this moment where he suddenly wouldn't be Logan Roy who owned all this stuff was really weighing on him. And what was also weighing on him was being cut off from his children. Yeah, so speaking of that, we, you know, we get to see each of the Roy kids say their final goodbyes over the phone, (laughs) except for Connor who chooses not to. Um, I I just wanna play a bit from Shiv Roy, played by Sarah Snook, who is the last to say goodbye. Daddy? Uh, I love you. Uh, 
Uh, Joan Gong, please, not now. No, I, I, uh, I, 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 I love you. God, I don't know. Um, there's no excuses for me. But I... Eric, I'm sure you've seen a lot of TV deaths. Um, how do you think this show handled mourning and grief? Well, we're going to see that in future episodes because this was all about the shock of his death. Mm. And it was very much about focusing on all the people around Logan and how they react to his death and what it means for them. And one of the things that we see is that it means a lot to these kids, even though they were aligned against him, even though they were united against him, they all wanted his approval, they all wanted his love, and with his death, that is impossible. Linda, on your recap, um, you called it a, a more honest portrayal of death than most you'll see on TV. Um, I'm curious why and whose reaction did you think was, was the most affecting? Well, I think in many ways it was Shiv. I think um, Shiv is a character who in the first maybe season struck me as the one who was the closest to being a kind of normal person. She had put some distance between herself and the family. Um, so I think seeing her kind of circle back and get very emotional was particularly affecting for me. What I mean when I say it's a more realistic portrayal of death, death does not happen at the appointed time, at the time in, in a season or at a moment when you're prepared for it. It's exactly like this death is. It comes when there are a bunch of other things going on, when everything is unresolved. It doesn't have these ominous last words that signal you that you're about to see a character death. Um, you don't have a particularly satisfying or cataclysmic last moment with people. And it comes in the form of this phone call that sort of comes in the middle of a day. And then the phone calls just get worse. And you keep thinking, you know, is this person actually dying? Is this really happening? And I think that's more honest than kind of episodes that signal this is a death episode. Um, and there are other examples of sort of out of nowhere. There were a couple in the wire that were like that. But a lot of times you get a more telegraphed death than this was. It's also what what they've been doing this season, I think, is showing more of the interpersonal connections. Like you more than ever, they're showing us that these characters actually want to connect with each other and they can't because they have such toxic history and because they were never really taught that and because their dad mostly used emotion to manipulate them against each other. And and so there's this yearning to connect and then this inability to do it. And 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 and, and again, you know, when they're all handed the phone and they can't really come up with anything coherent to say with their dad when they think it's his last moments on earth, is that's all summed up uh, in that scene. Okay, so where do we go from here? Who comes out at the top of this, Eric, place your bets. Let's go. Let's uh, let's make some wagers. I'm putting my money on Tom. Tom Wamsgames. <laughs> I really, I really feel like he's the he's the dark horse here. Tom Wamsgames. Okay, this is uh, Shiv's now estranged husband, and I guess we can call him like the right hand man to Logan. Yeah, that's right. He proved himself to be a more effective lieutenant to Logan than anyone might have expected once he kind of betrayed the siblings and his wife, and and it's obvious that Siobhan has feelings for him, and it's going to be hard for her to leave him behind. Uh, so I would not be surprised when the dust settles uh, that, that Tom is actually running everything. Linda, who's your racehorse? I don't think it can be Tom. I want to say Greg because I think it's the funniest outcome. <laughs> but I think I'm going to say that after all of this, Kendall will get what he's always wanted and find it completely hollow. Hollow. 
That was Linda Holmes from NPR's Pop Culture Happy Hour and NPR TV critic Eric Deggins. Thanks, y'all. Thank you. Thank you. You're listening to All Things Considered. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Peacock with the new original series, Mrs. Davis, about the world's most powerful artificial intelligence and the nun devoted to destroying her. From Tara Hernandez and Damon Lindelof, streams April 20th on Peacock. From Fisher Investments, as a fiduciary, Fisher Investments is obligated to act in their client's best interest. Learn more at fisherinvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. From Workday, an enterprise management cloud focused on providing organizations with a system to continuously plan for all what-if scenarios. Workday, the finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. And from the Doris Duke Foundation. This is 90.9 WBUR. Tonight, when the Red Sox start their series down in Florida with the Tampa Bay Rays, they'll do it without center fielder Adam Duvall. Duvall hurt his wrist yesterday in the final game with Detroit. Tonight, Nick Pavetta pitches against Jalen Beeks. Game time is 6.40. In the forecast, a glorious day today. More nice weather coming up. Overnight tonight, clear skies in the mid-40s. And tomorrow should climb to the mid-60s. Sunshine in full force for Wednesday. Partly sunny, about 65. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by UMass Chan Medical School. Proud to be named one of Boston Globe's top places to work. Learn more at umassmed.edu globe. I'm reporter Deborah Becker, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. One of the two Tennessee lawmakers expelled for leading chants for gun reform on the chamber floor last week will reclaim his seat in the Tennessee House. Representative Justin Jones got the backing of Nashville's council this afternoon. Our story is coming up on this Monday, April 10th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Also ahead in downtown Louisville, Kentucky today, authorities are investigating why a 23-year-old bank employee opened fire at his workplace in an attack that left four people dead and nine wounded. The man was uh, himself was killed in a shootout with police. And 10 years after the Boston Marathon bombings, the team that was working in the medical tent at the finish line speaks for the first time. I could start to feel panic because they're coming to me. Where do we go? We're safe. I had no idea. These stories and Wall Street numbers are coming up. It's 6.01. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. Officials in Louisville, Kentucky are providing more details on a mass shooting at a bank there early this morning. At a press conference this afternoon, they released the identity of the shooter and the four people he killed. 
Roberto Rodan with member station Louisville Public Media reports nine other people were injured in the shooting. City officials identified 23-year-old Connor Sturgeon as a man who walked into a meeting at Old National Bank and opened fire. They say Sturgeon, a bank employee, live-streamed the shooting. Four senior bank employees were killed, Joshua Barrick, Juliana Farmer, James Tutt, and Thomas Elliott. Elliott was a close friend of Kentucky Governor Andy Bashir. Tommy Elliott helped me build my law career. Helped me become governor. Gave me advice on being a good dad. He's one of the people I talk to most in the world and very rarely were we talking about my job. Police say officers killed the shooter after arriving on scene. For NPR News, I'm Roberto Roldan in Louisville. One of two black state representatives expelled last week from the Tennessee State House is getting his seat back for now. The move coming on the heels of an effort by the body's GOP majority to punish those lawmakers who took to the House floor recently to protest in favor of stricter gun control. Nashville's Metro Council voting to reappoint Justin Jones to the legislature on an interim basis pending a special election. John Cooper is the mayor of Nashville and discussed today's vote. This afternoon's vote is unprecedented, but so was the action taken to expel members of the legislature. Voters in District 52 elected Justin Jones to be their voice at the state house, and that voice was taken away this past week. Jones and another black Democratic lawmaker were expelled for their role in the protest in the wake of a deadly school shooting in Nashville. The Pentagon says it's speaking with American allies about secret intelligence documents that have appeared on social media. As NPR's Greg Myrie reports, the documents refer to U.S. intelligence gathering on a number of U.S. partners. The dozens of leaked documents are mostly about the state of the war in Ukraine, but some refer to sensitive security issues in other countries aligned with the U.S., including Israel, Turkey, and South Korea. Chris Marr is a Pentagon spokesman. Those conversations are underway and ongoing um, and happening uh, at high levels throughout uh, government, uh, including here at the Department of Defense. He declined to provide details or say how U.S. allies are responding to the online revelations. The Pentagon is coordinating with the White House and multiple government agencies to determine who leaked the documents. Greg Myrie, NPR News, Washington. Stocks closed mixed on Wall Street today following new government employment numbers that came out Friday. Heightening speculation the Fed could hike interest rates again. The Dow was up 101 points. The Nasdaq closed down three points today. You're listening to NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Eversource customers in Massachusetts can expect to pay less on their natural gas bills this summer. Today, the company filed its new rate request with state regulators. The utility says customers could see 15 to 20 percent lower monthly bills compared to last summer. Eversource says the rate drop is due to anticipated lower demand and lower global market prices for natural gas. If approved, the new rates will go into effect May 1st. Massachusetts Governor Maura Healey says the state is stockpiling thousands of doses of a key abortion pill. It comes as the issue of future access to the pill is tied up in federal courts, as WBRS Walter Wuthman reports. Governor Healy says she asked the University of Massachusetts to put in a large order of mifepristone last week before a federal judge in Texas moved to pause its FDA approval. Mifepristone is part of a two-pill regimen used in nearly half of the abortions conducted in Massachusetts. Healy says the roughly 15,000 doses, more than a year's supply, should arrive in the coming days. So I just want to be clear with the people of Massachusetts. Abortion, medication abortion, will remain safe, legal, and accessible here in the Commonwealth. Healy also signed an executive order giving legal protections to health care providers who prescribe mifepristone. 
For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Walter Wuthman. Meantime, Governor Healy's approval rating is the highest it's been since she took office in January. Nearly 60 percent of state residents surveyed in a UMass Amherst WCVB poll approve of the governor's work. In February, a Mass Inc. poll showed she was viewed favorably by 42 percent of respondents. The new UMass poll finds the issue residents want her to address most is the housing crisis. Only 29 percent of people surveyed said Governor Healy has handled that issue well. City officials in Cambridge say the steeple of the Faith Lutheran Church will have to be removed. Fire ripped through the 114-year-old church yesterday on Broadway near Inman Square. It happened shortly after Easter services were held. Some roads near that church remain closed. The cause of the fire is under investigation. Massachusetts Attorney General Andrea Campbell is advocating for stronger oversight of long-term care facilities in Massachusetts. In testimony at the State House today, she said there's still a lot of work to do in Massachusetts when it comes to protecting and advocating for seniors. We owe our elders more than just our respect, frankly. We owe them an opportunity to live a long and healthy life in the communities they choose, free from hardship caused by scams, fraud, and unequal access to health care. The bill before lawmakers would increase penalties for elder abuse or neglect. It also boosts incentives to attract new workers to the industry. Drivers traveling on parts of I-93 in the Boston area should prepare for a slow ride tonight. The State Department of Transportation says construction will require short-term overnight closures of a single lane in both directions. The closures will take place in several locations between the Tip O'Neill Tunnel and the Route 16 exit in Medford. They'll be in place between 8 tonight and 5 tomorrow morning. The on-ramp from the Fellsway West to 93 South at exit 24 will also close during that time. And shuttle buses will replace trains on part of the Blue Line tonight through Thursday night. The changes will be in effect from or between Wonderland and Government Center stations from 8.45 to the end of service. The T says the service disruptions are needed for track work to be done. In the forecast, look for a starry night tonight, lows in the mid-40s. Tomorrow, bright sunshine climbing to the mid-60s. This is 90.9 WBUR. It's 6.08. WBUR supporters include the Rockefeller Foundation making opportunity universal and sustainable for over 100 years. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. One of the Tennessee lawmakers who was expelled by the state legislature last week could be heading back to the Capitol in Nashville. The Nashville Metro Council met today and voted to temporarily reinstate Representative Justin Jones to the seat that he was ousted from. Jones was expelled along with fellow Democrat Justin Pearson. Both of them are black. A third Democrat, Representative Gloria Johnson, who's a white woman, was also up for expulsion, but she was able to keep her seat by a single vote. All three of them took part in protests that disrupted proceedings at the state house. They were calling for stricter gun control measures in the state. Zolfat Suara is a Democrat who sits on the Nashville Metro Council and voted to have Jones reinstated. She says Jones is a close friend. Yes, and actually he's uh, uh, like a son to me. Uh, he calls me his mama Z. So we, we've had a, a relationship for a long time. But my vote is not just about that. My vote is based on all the thousands of emails and calls that we've received from his constituents demanding that we send him back. And so it's about the voices of the voters and why we have to respect that. When I spoke to Councilwoman Suara earlier today, I asked her what went through her mind last week when Representatives Jones and Pearson were expelled. I was actually sitting in the gallery 
<clears throat> I had been out of town. I came back that morning, went straight to the state capitol and listened to uh, the airing and, and, and the back and forth. <laughs> and I was sitting there thinking, you know, at the end of the day, they would not expel them. Like, you know, we know what happened. We know why they protested. We know I see people on the streets. I see mothers crying, students begging for us to do something. And that's what they were trying to do. So I thought at the end of the day, you know, nothing would happen. And so when the vote actually happened, I was crying. I knew we had the opportunity to possibly put him back, but the fact that it did happen uh, was a fast on democracy. I have an 18-year-old that just voted for the first time, and I'm sitting there thinking, what would these kids be thinking about when, when a legislature can be voted out just like that, just because they wanted to stand with the people? And especially in a place where we've had other people committed worse things, done worse things, and were not expelled. So, so it was it was very disheartening. It was very emotional for for a lot of us. It was very upsetting, and and it was really bad. And at the end of the day, it was actually worse when there were three of them, but only the two black were were expelled. I wanted to uh, ask so you the, about that piece of all this. Do you think the decision to expel Jones and Pearson, but not Johnson, do you think that decision was related to race? I mean. It, the optics doesn't look good. And that's the only conclusion that can be drawn because all three of them had the hearing, all three of them had the resolution, all three of them were standing up there. Uh, and so whatever compels some people to vote against expelling Gloria Johnson, why did they not use the same to be able to, to keep the other two? It just doesn't make sense. And so to me and to everybody looking at it, the optics doesn't look good. And I mean, they can say something else, uh, but the action shows that two black men were expelled and it, it, it has to be raised. If we can just step back, your city, Nashville, went through the trauma of a mass shooting at a school just two weeks ago. In fact, yes. that was the reason for the protests, calling yes. for stricter gun control measures. Yes. And now those protests have given way to this bigger debate about democracy in your state. I mean, you're thinking about your 18-year-old son who just voted. Do you think this whole situation has turned into a distraction from the original issue, guns? I, I think the hearing and the expulsion was a distraction. I think the people that are protesting have not lost sight of why they started the protest. At every protest that I've attended, at everything that I've seen, people still keep bringing back the issue of the guns. And so even with the hearing, I remember Joan saying that, look, even if you expel me, we will be back. We're going to still be talking about this. On Friday, there was another protest held in Nashville about guns. And so we have not forgotten. I think they're the one trying to distract, but we are less focused on the reason why we're here. Well... The Republican leadership in the state legislature has staunchly defended its decision to expel Representatives Jones and Pearson. Tell me, what would you like to say personally to those Republican lawmakers at the state capitol now? I would like to say a couple of things. Uh, the first thing is that if the council, uh, Nashville City Council and Memphis commissioners should vote to put these individuals back. I hope that the state would not object, and I hope that they will sit them as soon as possible. That would be the first thing. The second thing that I would like to say is that none of us should forget the reason why all this started. It's about the people that died. It's about the protest for good gun law. So personally, I hope that 
our state legislators will enact safe gun laws, common sense gun laws. And so I'm hoping that at the end of the day, one that these two black men get their seats back if their people choose to send them back. And then number two, that I hope after all of this, that our state legislators listen to the people, the outcries, the rally, and make sure that we do something about gun control in our state. That was Nashville Councilwoman at large, Zolfat Suara. Thank you very much for your time today. Thank you for having me. President Biden heads to Northern Ireland tomorrow to mark the 25th anniversary of the signing of the Good Friday Agreement. Then it is on to the Republic of Ireland, where he is expected to make official stops in Dublin and personal stops in two counties where his family has roots. President Biden is known to wear his Irish Catholic heritage on his sleeve. And as NPR's Tamara Keith reports, he has a penchant for quoting the great Irish poets. President Biden quotes Irish poets so often he has a joke about it. And he tells that joke a lot. They always used to kid me because I always quoting Irish poets on the floor of the Senate. They think I did it because I'm Irish. That's not the reason. I did it because they're the best poets in the world. Dan Clucci was a senior presidential speechwriter in the early part of the Biden administration. I wouldn't say that he exclusively quotes Irish poets, but I think you're probably looking at a a ratio of, you know, at least a 90-10 scenario. In particular, Biden is fond of William Butler Yeats. As the Irish poet said, all change changed utterly. A terrible beauty has been born. That is from the poem Easter 1916, about a failed uprising in Ireland's fight for independence from Great Britain. Biden has applied that stanza to an America divided, a changing world, the aftermath of wildfires in California, and to mark the Jewish High Holy Days. And yes, it appears in many a Senate floor speech. But that is far from the only Yates Biden has at the tip of his tongue. But we hear the words of Yates. said, think where man's glory most begins and ends, and say, my glory was I had such friends. Words that echo from an island close to my heart as a descendant of County Mayo and County Louth. There he was praising the Irish rock band U2, Yates won the Nobel Prize for Literature in 1923 for giving expression to the spirit of a whole nation. For Biden, the compulsion to quote his words runs deep, as he described in a CNN town hall in 2020. As a child trying to overcome his stutter, Biden used his Uncle Ed Finnegan's book of Yates. And, on, and I'd get up in the night, in the middle of the night with a flashlight, and I'd look in the mirror, and I would try to memorize what I could, another small book on Emerson quotes. I remember the first one, looking in the mirror with a flashlight in my face because you get embarrassed because you can, you, you, you can torch your face. And it's embarrassing. In a way, Biden has found his own voice through Yeats. But it was a different Nobel Prize-winning poet and playwright who Biden quoted as he accepted the Democratic Party's nomination for president in August 2020. The Irish poet Seamus Heaney once wrote, History says, don't hope on this side of the grave. But then, once in a lifetime, the longed-for tidal wave of justice can rise up and hope and history rhyme. This is our moment to make hope and history rhyme. 
with passion and purpose. Biden isn't the first or the only politician to quote from Heaney's play, The Curate Troy, but he may well be the politician who quotes those lines the most. The former presidential speechwriter Dan Clucci says that line speaks to Biden again and again and again. That portion of The Curate Troy, I think for him, is a touchstone. I think it's one of those things not only the president is like this, but so many <laughs> leaders are like this, is when they found the perfect way of expressing a certain feeling, there's no improving on it, which, you know, it's hard for me to argue with that. Biden is preparing to travel to Ireland to mark the 25th anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement, a peace accord that brought an end to decades of religious and ethnic violence in Northern Ireland. The curate Troy premiered in the midst of the Troubles in 1990. Cahar O'Doherty, the arts and travel editor for the Irish Voice, says it echoed through a divided Ireland and has a universal message. No matter how deeply stuck you feel your country and, and a war might be, there is always the possibility that you can snatch some kind of hope or future or possible way forward. O'Doherty says he's been in many a room when a politician starts talking about hope and history rhyming. And everyone just rolls their eyes. But he sees Biden as someone who has lived a life of great joy and great sorrow in the Irish way, something that is given voice by the great Irish poets. It may be a reflex, but I think it's heartfelt. I think that it steers him and steadies him. And it's something that he reaches for the way that the Irish people do themselves. And it goes without saying, odds are in favor of Biden reaching for a lot of Heaney and Yates this week. Tamara Keith, NPR News. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR coming up on Marketplace starting at 630. Downtown Boston's become a foodie hub as there are now more restaurants open than before the pandemic. I think that oftentimes people are looking for the good times to do things. But sometimes being able to buy in the low market is a smart way of doing it. What's driving Boston's restaurant resurgence coming up on Marketplace this evening? It starts at 6.30. On Wall Street, the street started out with not too much movement today. The Dow rose three-tenths of a percent. S&P ended one-tenth of a percent higher. The Nasdaq gave up a tiny fraction. JetBlue Airlines will offer new service from Worcester Airport to Orlando and Fort Myers. Non-stop flights to Orlando will begin this summer and operate year-round. Seasonal service to Fort Myers begins in January. It's 6.20. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Waterstone, a new luxury, independent, and assisted living community with social and wellness programs and fine dining on Watertown Street in Lexington, waterstonelexington.com. And Boston Lyric Opera presenting Omar, a new opera with music by Grammy Award winner Rhiannon Giddens. Opens May 4th. Visit blo.org. Turn your old car into new news. Support the programming you love by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Learn how at WBUR.org slash cars. Red Sox are down in Tampa Bay tonight to start up a three-game set with the Tampa Bay Rays. Nick Pavetta pitches against Jalen Beeks. Game time is 640. In the forecast, beautiful day today. Should be a nice night tonight. 
Temperatures just about 45 degrees, clear skies. And tomorrow should have a lot of sunshine once again, climbing to the mid-60s. 58 degrees now in Boston at 621. WBUR supporters include Semester Off, an educational and wellness program in Wellesley helping college-age students and high school grads get on track. Academics, executive function coaching, yoga, and counseling are designed to help develop resilience, improve confidence, and learn new skills. Summer semester starts June 5th. Semesteroff.com. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. It's been nearly 10 years since two bombs exploded at the Boston Marathon. And for the first time, the medical volunteers stationed at the finish line that day are speaking publicly. WBUR's Martha Biemiger has the story of what they remember about the day and what some of the unexpected aftereffects of the trauma have been. This story lasts about six and a half minutes, and some parts of it may be disturbing. April 15, 2013, was a near-perfect race day. Volunteers inside a vast white medical tent at the finish line remember feeling relief. It wasn't hot like the previous year when runners suffering from heat stroke and exhaustion packed the tent. Then, at 2.49 p.m., the first bomb exploded about 75 yards from that tent. Brian Fitzgerald, an athletic trainer, remembers seeing the smoke. A second bomb, not quite a block away, rocked Fitzgerald as he made his way toward a tangle of wood and metal fences. Once you stepped into that, it was a different world. It just shock. Uh, It was like hell. As soon as you walked in, all you could do was smell blood and burning flesh. Yeah, it was horrific. 761 Police on the scene made call after call for more ambulances. One officer pleaded for aid from the marathon's volunteer doctors and nurses. Help up from the medical tent. Get as many people up here as you can from the medical tent. Inside the medical tent, nurse Lynn Landry heard the call for help and glimpsed the unfolding terror. Saw people running by the opening of the tent looking back over their shoulder. The only thing I could think of was 9-11. Still, this veteran nurse left a runner knotted with cramps, grabbed IV supplies, and headed out. And then I saw what everyone else saw on TV, victims coming toward us. I stopped dead and thought, I didn't sign up for this. I don't know if I can do this. Someone pulled Landry away from the pools of blood and ripped clothing, directing her back inside the tent. A woman with shrapnel wounds needed IV fluids while she waited for an ambulance. And I was shaking like a leaf. I got it in and I thought, okay, this is what I'm going to do. Go from one patient to the next to the next and just put in IVs. 22 minutes after that first bomb, emergency responders had sent 97 people to local hospitals. Three people died at the scene. Landry and other clinicians bandaged the less urgent victims and kept tending to runners. They could see news reports on a big screen TV about bomb scares around the city. We got a possible device at 671 Boylston. Possible device. Police detonated at least one other suspicious package not far from the tent. A few medical volunteers fled. Now I could start to feel panic. Chris Troyanos is the marathon's medical coordinator. Because they're coming to me. Where do we go? We're safe. I had no idea. 
This from a man whose mission for more than two decades had been to address every Boston Marathon medical need and question before it was asked. Not that day. Not that day at all. No, I, and I felt very bad. I couldn't help people. Troyanos did help many, many people on the day of the bombings and for months to come, while police worked to unravel what was behind this act of domestic terrorism. Within the week, the Boston Athletic Association offered debriefing sessions for roughly 1,800 clinicians and more than 10,000 total volunteers to help them process the trauma. Counseling was available for months. Back at work at a local hospital, Landry realized she needed help. Sometimes I would pull back from patients. I thought, how do I know they're not a terrorist? And I thought, oh, this is, this is so wrong. So I went to counseling. Eight months later, it was a new year and time to face preparations for the next Boston Marathon. Troyanos needed a rebound strategy. And I'm going, i got to flip the switch. I've got to take more of a defiant approach. Now it's F you to the terrorists. Troyanos helped arrange taped messages from some of the bystanders who'd lost legs, delivering this message to medical tent volunteers. We need you to come back just as strong as ever. Some volunteers took the year off. Troyanos attended one security briefing after another. When the emotion-packed 2014 marathon ended, Troyanos was done too. I, I just didn't think I wanted to do this anymore. And, and not because of the bombing, because it was just, it, it was overwhelming. But out of the fear, anger, and despair that first anniversary kindled, something powerful was taking shape. What Troyanos now calls his race medicine family. He's gathered a few of them for this conversation. It's the first time they've talked at length about the event 10 years ago that forged these bonds. Every one of these people, medical or not, I mean, I trust them with my life. I mean, I know that they're going to do what we need, and I never question it. I don't have to worry about it. The family is 12 to 15 volunteers who travel with Troyanos to a dozen or so races around the country every year. Other members join at each location. They pack the supply trucks, set up cots, run hoses and IV lines. Race day starts with wake-up calls between 3 and 5 a.m. And the race day playlist. I start dancing on the sidewalk (laughs) before I get in the car at 5 in the morning. Sarah Menendez is an athletic trainer. She doesn't want to talk about 2013. It was her first year volunteering with the race. That's not a defining moment. We have come together afterwards, and that's what we focus on. With love and humor. At official race family events, for example, everyone wears their lucky red underwear. Since this interview is an official race family event, Landry canvasses the room. So we all have on our reds. Do you have on your red? I sure do. Do you have on your right, Chris? Okay. Laughter and knowing glances travel the room to Emma Nelson, an orthopedic physical therapist. We have to be there. We have to be there for each other. So it's difficult to put into words exactly what it means, but it means everything at the same time. Because together, this family has learned they can face anything. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Martha Biedinger.
Coming up tomorrow, Boston hospitals responded to the marathon bombings in a way that's become a model for dealing with mass casualties. But local hospitals are more crowded and shorter staffed today than they were 10 years ago. That's raising questions about how well they could handle a similar emergency. That story's tomorrow on Morning Edition and All Things Considered, here at 90.9 WBUR. This is WBUR. Clear skies tonight, lows in the mid-40s. Tomorrow, sun's back. Temperatures could make it all the way to the mid-60s. For Wednesday, partly sunny in the mid-60s again. Could move up to the low 70s on Thursday. This is 90.9 WBUR. 58 degrees now in Boston at 630. Marketplace is next. <laughs> 